Hello, and welcome to The Conversation. I'm Heil Russell. And I'm Josh Wallen. Oh, Josh, how are you doing, buddy? Oh, I'm doing good. Really? (laughs) Really? (laughs) Oh, no. No, I actually am. It's, it's been, it's been, uh, it's been a good time for, for me lately. I've, I, I, I finished, I finished my season about a, about a week ago. And since then, I've just been, I've been on vacation mode. Actually, God, it's been about two weeks now, hasn't it, man? What's that like? I, I, I don't even know. Uh, congratulations on finishing your season. Uh, the, the Geek Critique, by the way, check it out on the YouTubes. I, I, this is, this is the worst time of year for me. I hate, okay, I, I don't hate the holiday season, but inevitably I end up resenting the holiday season <laughs> because by the time we hit December 23rd, 24th, whatever, I am a withered husk. I, I am just beaten down into submission and, I got a lot on my plate anyway, outside of just the usual DK Vine stuff, but I'm also trying to get, you know, all this content out and, you know, keeping the, up with the conversation. And, you know, big, big YouTubers have decided to make Donkey Kong December a thing, Josh. <laughs> and as somebody who talks about Donkey Kong and the Donkey Kong universe every day of the year... I suddenly feel immense guilt that I'm not doing more in the month of December, you know, the busiest, most stress-inducing month of the year, to to keep up with this artificial metric of, oh, it's Donkey Kong December, something that a big YouTuber with millions of subscribers or whatever has made up, and and we should all jump and dance to it. And Well, for for YouTubers in particular, I mean, December is always a very... uh... I guess I think like YouTubers all, will always want to put out lots of content in December because around the holidays, ad revenue is up. It's a very lucrative time. The thing is, with the kind of content that some of us make, you have to start working on whatever you're going to put out in December in about July. That's what I did anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so for, for me, it's more like the stress is all behind me now, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I'm also like, why am I trying to compete with all these people in December to talk about Donkey Kong when I'm going to be here talking about Donkey Kong in January and February and March <laughs> and April? Like, yeah, like I- my lo- our our love for Donkey Kong cannot be contained to merely one out of twelve months. It's not conditional to to this just because <laughs> it's alliteration. I'm not going to play this game, people. So yeah, no, DK Vine isn't acknowledging donkey kong december because it's not a thing because it's it's donkey kong 24 7 365 here at dk vine so uh blow me i don't care <laughs> I just having said that okay having said that i do want to give a shout out and in fact a plug to uh my fellow youtuber designing for yes yes uh, s- speaking of Things that you started working on working on in july uh he told me <laughs> that he started working on this in july it's, uh, he's, so the original joke with Donkey Kong December, which was started by, by video game Donkey, was that he was going to make a Donkey Kong video every single day in December. Oh. And then he did not actually do that. <laughs> and oh, okay. that was the joke. 
Okay. See, that was I, last year. I'm not up on things, Josh. I, I'm in my own bubble, usually because I'm so busy, you know, spinning all the plates for DK Vine. Because it'd be one mm-hmm. thing if I was just making YouTube content, but I'm not. I'm, like, trying to do a little bit of everything, and it kills me! And I, I, and therefore, like, I, I'm, I'm a master of no domain. I'm just trying to keep up with everything. You know, well, a little bit of content over here, a little bit of content over there as I wipe the flop sweat from my forehead. But yes, Designing Four, I, I'm actually familiar with. They're actually a mm-hmm. uh, conversation listener. Uh, they're, they're familiar with, uh, DK Vine and I, they actually consulted me for a, uh, Diddy Kong video. Um, yeah, yeah. A while back ago. So, uh, I, I do recommend their content. Um, it's been, it's been pretty great, but. Yeah, they actually are putting out daily Donkey Kong videos all throughout the month of December. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, told, told me that they did indeed start working on that, in, that project in July because that's what you gotta do. Yeah. So anyway, uh, all, all this being said, uh, I hate December. I, <laughs> but, you know, I hope everyone is having a nice holiday season, regardless of my own bitterness. I, I, I do genuinely hope everyone can find a little peace and solitude for this winter solstice. And we are oh, gonna- I know. I know it's stressful. We were out at a we were out at a part at a department store a couple hours ago, and I'm there sorry. was this woman with two. With, yeah, that alone. There was this woman with two children. Of course, it was busy as fuck. But there was this woman with two children, and one of them like dropped her cup and like spilled it on the floor, and then picked it up. And the mother there just made this expression like she was too tired to even be angry about it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, I remember my parents giving me that look. Jeez. Yeah. I, yeah, I I just want to be in a cabin in the forest somewhere. I just want to be away from it all. But DK Vine's going to be here through the end of the year uh, with conversations and and other surprises. Uh, Dustin is working on our holiday card again, and we'll be uh, unveiling that within uh, a few days, uh, actually. Um, so. You know, we're 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 gonna be festive. We're gonna we're gonna be putting on our celebratory elfin suits. But I we're, just we're gonna be putting in the merry code on the file select screen. I'm not doing that on my my DK Vine done slow uh, slow run of DKC three at yeah because I was like yeah, I I just, I just want to experience the the green bananas and the stars as is. I don't I don't need any more. Christmas shoved in my face, but <laughs> no, I'm gonna we're gonna be festive. Don't worry. Uh, with the next week or so, we, we are going to uh, have a lot of um, holiday fun here at DK Vine, and I want. If you thank- keep this up, some spirits are gonna r- visit you in the middle of the night and teach you the true me- meaning of the season. Highly, now, you better it, be careful. It, if it's Wrinkly Kong and uh, the Ghost Riders <laughs> and. Ramsey the Pirate Lord, then you know what? Let them come. We'll have some fun. I think, uh, you know, th- this will be a nice episode to be a backdrop to everyone's holiday travels or gift wrapping or decorating or cookie baking or whatever the hell you're doing. I, I-, I hope this episode will be that for you. Because um, we're going to be talking about... I don't even know if this is a controversial topic. I don't know anymore, Josh. I 
I announced this. I, I announced this topic on uh, social media the other day, and people got angry um, because they misread what I was saying. They they thought we were coming after the N sixty four, and of course, this episode is entitled "In Defense of the Nintendo sixty four. So we are not doing that. We are not attacking the N sixty four. We are going to be addressing what we both feel like is sort of become a bit of revisionist history in the last couple of years in online discourse when it comes to the Nintendo 64. We're, we're going to get into all of it and explain what we mean and why the N64 needs defending. Yeah, but, I, I, feel, uh, I, I, I relate to you so well when you say, I don't know if this is a controversial opinion or not. Because, <laughs> like, that's one of the things about being on the internet for, like decades at this point yeah is that we've kind of seen different things turn turn in and out of the discourse to the point that we kind of remember like okay this was the consensus at one time is it still <laughs> right right and, and i have i have no idea you know if you're on an episode of the conversation generally we're we're touching upon the notion of these generational divides in the fandom and how perspectives can differ even within like five years age difference between people and oh, and yeah. how as people come of age you get new majority opinions kind of filtering out older opinions and how everything just becomes sort of muddled and and so with clarity of vision we are going to be uh attacking this topic head on as as people who lived through the 1990s and have a clear recollection of what happens, <laughs> I think <laughs> we are fully qualified to talk about this. And no, the Geek Critique and DK Vine are not going to attack the N64. We're not going to, like, coddle it either, but this is just... We, we're, we're doing this episode <laughs> because we feel like we have to set the record straight as best we can. Yes. yes. Yeah. No, it's kind of funny because sometimes I hear people say things that seem to imply that, like, people like us, like, I guess, quote unquote, 90s kids uh. just aren't around at all anymore. <laughs> are that are that we never we never say anything. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm still here, you know. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. But, I feel I feel like it's because older millennials generally aren't online as much as we are. Like, see, here's the thing. I am, I'm technically an older millennial, right? But I've always... And I, and I am right in the dead center of millenn- of, the, of what's yeah. called the millennials. And, but the problem is I've always been sort of like, uh, suffering from arrested development. I've always sort of been five years younger than my biological age would, would say. So... I, I I am sort of one of those older millennials that um, grew up later. I was a late bloomer. So because of that, I I can give you the perspective of someone who may not be online uh, mm-hmm. anymore with all of the uh, fresh-faced dewiness of a, of a person five years younger than me. So... <laughs> Well, I, th- I believe I'm five years younger than you. So. Well, there you go. There we go. Yeah. We're, we're practically twins. Uh, before we <laughs> but, get into it, though, Josh, I, I do want yes. to plug our wares, rare or not. Uh, so really quick, I a- as is customary in late 2022, I need to plug DK Vine's Mastodon 
account. Pterodactyl. Uh, because I can't Wait, plug what? it on Twitter anymore, apparently. Oh, yeah, that's true. I saw that. <laughs> so, DK Vine is on Mastodon. So, if you're looking for an alternative to Twitter, uh, rest assured, I am... Well, I, I wasn't for about a week because Mastodon, or at least the Mastodon server I'm on, they did a database migration, which caused us to lose half of our followers on Mastodon and also like half of our post. But, um. Still better than the alternative. Yeah, I, 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 so I, I've just resumed posting on Mastodon after a hiatus over the weekend and into. Uh, like midweek when I was still waiting for like, uh, are my posts going to come back? Are my followers going to come back? Um, but I, I, we are on Mastodon and I'm putting all of our, what would be our Twitter content is also getting reposted on Mastodon. So if you don't want to support whatever mad boy emerald mine apartheid era, Error is is losing his mind in real time. Uh, then you can you know go to dkbind.com forward slash mastodon or just find us on mastodon. Uh, it's mastodon.sdf.org or whatever. I I don't I don't know <laughs> or something like that. Something also, like that. Also, that reminds me, it hasn't been said in a long time, but it needs to be said. We will not be taking any hotline questions about apartheid. Just want to throw <laughs> that out there. Right. So. Anyway, uh, yeah, follow us on Mastodon. You will get the same content you do on Twitter. And as of a couple of hours ago, uh, Hive's back online, too. So we're, we're also on Hive, if you're on Hive. Hive was down for two weeks. Oh, my <laughs> and, God, was it? <laughs> yeah, it suffered complete colony collapse. But <laughs> <laughs> it's it's been repopulated. Uh, whatever security issues were at play have apparently been solved. So... I will be also cross-posting on Hive for as long as this is feasible. I think Mastodon has taken the lead as far as Twitter alternatives, but Hive is uh, back in the running at least. So we will, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see, you, we'll see you on both. Whatever you want, you can follow us on Mastodon or Hive. I'm not on post yet. Uh, we'll, we'll see, but yeah. Um, follow the I'm, DK Vine Zanga at. <laughs> I am running a contest, too, to try to boost our followers on both platforms. So if you follow us on Mastodon and or Hive, you will be entered eventually to win a uh, fan, an official fan gamer googly eye pin that they, they, they put out for Banjo-Kazooie. You, it's, it's official rare merchandise. These have been discontinued. I have the last two available. And I will be awarding one of them to somebody who follows us on Mastodon and one of them to somebody who follows us on High. But because both platforms have suffered a bit in the last two weeks, uh, I have held off on uh, an end date for this contest. I don't know when it's going to be. It was originally going to be like last Monday, but then everything went to shit for both. So to be determined, but just follow us. On either Mastodon or Hive. You might have to refollow us on Mastodon if you already followed us. But, uh, yeah, you'll be, you'll be entered to win one of these googly eye pins, which you can no longer get from Fangamer. And, uh, well, who wouldn't want that? We're trying to get eyes on these new social media accounts, Josh. So, therefore, oh, we'll be giving out eyes. 
And if you win, you can use that to turn anything into into like a living organism. That's right. That's right. Um, so, except the flaming wreckage of your Tesla. So, anyway, <laughs> Mastodon and Hive. Follow us on both. And I hate to plug this during a season where everybody is financially strapped, but DK Vines on Patreon. And I just really quick, I just want to thank all of our patrons, whether they be regular or irregular. It really does make the difference in keeping the lights on and, and it keeps the dream of DK Mine alive. Look, I'm not I'm not making much money from this. I'm breaking even, essentially. But it still allows me to keep plugging away. Eventually, I would like to you know, make enough from DK Vine where I don't need to do side hustles. Uh, I don't need to, you know, <laughs> work the streets. But I... Wait, what? Uh, forget it. No, don't worry about it, Josh. But then maybe I could do videos every day for Donkey Kong December. Who knows? But Jeez, Christmas wears you out more than I thought. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually a, a, a mall Santa. <laughs> No, I'm just I'm a, I'm a I'm a mall Santa's helper. It's not even not even that great. I think you'd have the spirit that like in spirit you would be very good at that, but the problem is you would get very upset at all the children who didn't want Donkey Kong Universe related gifts. Right. And then I would explain to them, "No, don't worry. Conquer is part of the Donkey Kong Universe." And they would just stare at me stone-faced. You don't want V-Bucks. You want you want a Nintendo 64. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, thank you to our patrons. If you have thought about uh supporting DK Vine on, on Patreon, uh, you know, check us out in a new year. Uh DKVine.com forward slash Patreon. Every little bit. Yeah, honestly, honestly, thank you to all patrons everywhere. I yeah. I know firsthand I would not be able to do what I do without Patreon either. So yeah. It, it really I mean, it, does make a difference. It's it's been it's been like night and day since we started the Patreon. It, yeah. it just makes it possible. And, I yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to produce the conversation as much as I do. The, it, it borders on actually being a career rather than just a, a hobby. So thank you to our patrons. And the more patrons we get, the more we can make that dream a reality. Let's make it happen in 2023, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and, and Josh, really quick, the Geek Critique. You just finished your season – Oh, mm-hmm. what what can uh, subscribers to the Geek Critique on YouTube? Uh, what what kind of content can they watch? Can they uh, be entertained by? Oh well, it's a four episode season. With three of the four episodes are out now. Uh, the the newest one just came out today, actually, as this is being recorded, and the last one will be out on Friday, the twenty third. It's a four episode season covering some of the more obscure Sonic games, some of the more uh, I guess forgotten ones to a certain extent. That seems to be sort of a theme of the season, but it's uh-huh. uh, Sonic Rush and Sonic Rush Adventure for the Nintendo DS, and then Sonic and the Secret Rings and Sonic and the Black Knight for the Wii. And half of those games were actually some of the very, very few Sonic games that I had never beaten before. And in fact, in one case, I had never even played it before, before wow. I started this season. So it sort of takes a different format to uh, a lot of the Sonic episodes 
where I'm actually sort of taking you through the experience of me of me experiencing this game for the first time. Yeah. And um like when I wrote the scripts for them I would like, you know, I'd play if I'd play a couple of levels, I'd play a while then I'd come back and give my thoughts just on that section. So like it's a very uh it's a very I guess focused look at at each of those games. So you you say there there's some of the more obscure and forgotten Sonic games. Uh, yeah. What what would be the Donkey Kong equivalent to them? Well, given the time period, I guess it would be things like uh, like the buyout era games, mm. like uh, like Barrel Blast, uh, even Jungle Beat to a certain to a certain extent, really. Yeah, ju- Jungle Beat's weird because it is uh, effectively it is the mainline console game of that generation, but a lot yeah. of people just treat it like it's a, a spinoff or a side game. And I'm like, no, that that was the Donkey Kong game uh, of that era. I mean, but people think it's uh, Donkey Konga or or some derivative of Donkey Konga because of the bongos. So yeah, I I think if Jungle Beat hadn't had a name that made like honestly, if you didn't know, like if say you hear about Donkey Konga, mm-hmm. and like you know you're you're not like those lots of people were making fun of the barrel the 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 bongo drum peripherals, so you're not really gonna forget that. But then, like, a year later, you hear about Donkey Kong Jungle Beat. You're just going to think that's Donkey Konga again. I mean, this was discussed earlier this season, wasn't it? <laughs> so <laughs> I, I believe it was. Yeah, yes. that's, I feel like that, there's a reason this is on the tip of my brain. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I just wondering because, yeah. you know, when I think of obscure Donkey Kong games, obviously I live and breathe this. So for me, an obscure Donkey Kong game would be something like Donkey Kong Country Barrel Maze. It, it would be, you know, something <laughs> that people don't even trust the validity of it existing in the first place. But yeah, if if it was out on the Wii or or whatever, then I don't think it could be as obscure <laughs> as a Shockwave game from 2003. Yeah, jeez. <laughs> With ska music, I love that. <laughs> All right, well... It's always what I think of. Yeah. Josh, here we go again. Uh, whenever you're on the show, it's an event. It's a treat. But we we tend to I get <laughs> philosophical. We tend to get weighty. And, and we tend to reflect on our own mortality a bit whenever you're on the show. Because we do... That's, we that's do, been a theme yeah. that I've... <laughs> that for better and worse, I've, I've focused on a lot over the past few years, yeah. And, I mean, we... Full disclosure: We we have been talking about doing this episode since September. Uh, yeah. We you you first approached me with just this quibble. You you came at me was like, "Hey, have you noticed this?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I noticed <laughs> it." And and it's like, "Why why don't we do a podcast about it?" All right, when do you want to do it? I don't know, December. Um, <laughs> and so here we are. Uh, we we are discussing. At the crux of this, this is nothing more than just, like I said, the generational divide between gamers and how it's usually just a matter of your own childhood anchoring your perspective. That's all this is. That That's all this ever is. But, that, that, I mean, we are, we are basically old men at this point, Josh, and... But but we're not like old men well, in the... speak cr- for yourself, elder millennial. All right, but, but we're not like <laughs> cranky Kong old men where we're we're complaining about the youth we're here to meet the youth halfway we're, we're, we're here to say hey maybe your perspective is a bit off here i understand it but let's try to meet in the middle and and come to a consensus 
about why you think the way you do, why we think the way we do, and let's bring in some stats. Let's bring in some facts. <laughs> and uh, let's let's all uh, grab some drinks afterward, if you're old enough to drink. So, uh, oh, God, if you are. <laughs> yeah, like, and, and I don't, like, I don't want that to be, like, patronizing, because the truth of the matter is, through this whole process, what it's really caused me to do over the past couple of years is actually reevaluate my perspectives sure. on a lot of this stuff. Because so much of it is like, I see people younger than me saying the same things that I remember people older than me saying and that I remember feeling when I was that age. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, it, it, it kind of feeds into this thing where I'm like, why did I, like, why do I really believe what I thought I believed and like how valid was it really? And not right. saying, and that that's not saying I'm going to like disavow it or stop believing it, but just let me reevaluate my perspective on this. Yeah. Yeah. And this is an episode that we probably wouldn't have done six to seven years ago uh, because six to seven years ago, I would argue was pretty much the height of 1990s nostalgia and therefore, Nintendo 64 nostalgia. I mean, you might slide that time scale up or down a little bit. But, mm-hmm. you know, time refuses to stand still. And I would argue that we're now at the cusp or, or the, uh, the early years of early aughts nostalgia. Early to mid-aughts nostalgia. Just as the 90s kids came of age a while back ago and, and began... To reclaim the narrative of our childhood. Uh, now the GameCube generation, and maybe the early Wii generation, are doing the same. And, you know, their narrative um, is honestly a similar narrative to the narrative that we were combating in the early 2000s. Except now it's it's basically... The, the the myths and stories that were prevalent when the 2000s came into vogue and and displaced 1990s culture and and now it's being reframed from this nostalgic bent but it's just this just tug of war that keeps going back and forth throughout the years and I, I don't know. I, I think it's amusing to me that, you know, if you live long enough, you eventually see the same battles come back. <laughs> and um, <Yeah>. <laughs> <it>, it's <clears throat> it was a great feeling, right? Because around 2010, I would say, a lot of the nonsense of the 2000s started to fall by the wayside nonsense like donkey kong country is overrated and yeah people only like yeah. it for the graphics and a lot of that just fell by the wayside when people who grew up with donkey Kong country and genuinely loved it entered the industry and the media and started to have more of an outsized voice through content yeah, you creation. know I, I saw somebody a while back who was like watching i don't remember this was quite a while ago now i don't remember exactly what they were looking at i think they were they were watching like a top 10 list that was made in like 2006 or something uh-huh. and that top 10 list was like itself pushing back on the idea that donkey kong country 
wasn't a brilliant game in its own right. And like that didn't even make sense to them. Like they didn't even know that there was ever like such a strong, like that was the, that was the consensus in the discourse at that time. Yeah. And I mean, with, with, Donkey Kong Country, it wasn't just Donkey Kong Country, it was, you know, Rare itself never made any quality games, Sans, GoldenEye, and everybody who made GoldenEye left, and they were the ones who were good, uh, you know, and <laughs> it, it, it it kind of, like, filtered a little bit to the Nintendo 64 itself, like, the Nintendo 64 was a mistake in every way and now obviously people weren't gonna ever gun for things like ocarina of time or even super mario 64 to an extent but just just by and large it just you know the n64 was a blight now what's changed is that we now have people from that era who came of age during that era or you know were at the prime of their childhood during that era who are maybe reframing these narratives, but also talking up the GameCube because the GameCube is what they grew up with. And, you know, I I think this is becoming sort of secondhand wisdom in some corners of the internet. And obviously not within the bulk of our own audiences, Geek Critique and DK Vine. You know, I, I think mostly our audiences even if they didn't grow up during the era of the N64, they will be into that era enough through osmosis or through their own cultural uh, curiosity. Uh, And they're not going to be dismissive of it. But, you know, there there are some very popular YouTubers out there who far exceed DK Vine's popularity and, and even your own popularity, Josh. You're far more popular on YouTube than we are. But you know, th- th- these are these are uh, mammoths, uh, not mastodons, mammoths on YouTube. <laughs> and you know, I I feel like this narrative is a hyperbolic one, and it, it like I said, it it feels more like secondhand wisdom. And, from- and I, I think that I think I want to be clear about that. We're not arguing that this narrative is being said out of like some sense. Basically, it's not somebody trying to push a narrative because they have an agenda and they're intentionally right. trying to demean anything in particular. It, it's just like like you like you said at the top at the top of the discussion. It's like. Your the the perspective. Let, let, let me just let me just go in on this because this is <laughs> okay. I feel like I'm I feel like I'm walking around this instead of just going right in on it. And this is something that we that you and I discussed back in September. There's this there's this this little this little up and coming YouTuber. I, th- I think he has a couple million subscribers called Scott the Waz. Yeah, and uh, and I love Scott the Waz actually. I th- I think he does fantastic work. He's he's a freaking workhorse. He's he he, he deserves everything he's gotten and. uh and he's he's been very very kind to me personally as well. So th- th- this is this is not me throwing shade at Scott the Waz. But what I noticed and what I thought was kind of funny is I was looking like through his channel a while back and I noticed that he's made a video like he's made two videos on the GameCube. They're called Nintendo GameCube Shaping a Generation and GameCube was best. And then he's also made one video on the Nintendo 64. It says, Nintendo 64, Nintendo's best mistake. (laughs) And what kind of struck me about that is that 
if I was making videos on those two consoles, I would probably use those. I, I could see myself picking those exact titles, but just swapping, <laughs> swapping sure. them between the consoles. Sure. I would say game, the GameCube shaped generation. I would say, I would, uh, sorry, I would say the Nintendo 64 shaped generation. I would say the GameCube was Nintendo's best mistake, but that's sort of related to like, like we said, the perspective that you have. Mm. And, um, What's kind of interesting about that is when I really sort of step outside of my own experiences and try to set all that aside and try to just look at the entire history of, like, how these consoles were perceived, the truth of the matter is in each of their own times, the the N64 and the GameCube had a whole lot in common. Yeah. Um, They were both sort of seen as the, the N64 was seen as the beginning and the GameCube was seen as the continuation of Nintendo getting this very, this very childish puerile image and sort of having this image problem where like, Oh, real gamers don't play that real gamers play on, you know, they, they play real M rated games for hardcore gamers. All Nintendo has is a bunch of baby stuff. Um, they were both, you, the GameCube more so than the N64, I believe was seen that way, but even at the time, I know that the N64 was sort of where where that whole thing started. But then they each had this turnaround in public opinion as the kids who grew up with them came of age themselves and looked back on them and sort of changed changed the uh, changed the narrative about each of them. Yeah, and like I said, you were clear about it, and I want to be clear about it. This discussion isn't meant to tear down one console. Or, or the fanatics of that console in favor of another. I'm not here to burn down the GameCube in honor of the N64's integrity because that's nonsense. That, that, that is nonsense. We, you know, I think we both love quite a bit on the GameCube, actually. And, you know, as veterans, you and I, of the Nintendo Sega console war, I don't think either of us want to engage in a Nintendo Civil War. That's not, <laughs> that's not really. <clears throat> what interests me, like, I find something to love about every Nintendo console, even the Virtual Boy. Josh, I love the Virtual Boy, and I don't care who knows it. I think, You're like... You're to the choir on that one. I still <laughs> get no arguments from me. And even, even Nintendo consoles that I'm still very harsh on, as I am the Wii U... I still acknowledge there are a lot of great games on the Wii U. You can play most of them on the Nintendo Switch, but... You know the the Wii oh, U. I, you can, but man, I oh, I love the Wii U. I at the time that was my most played console. I can't wait. I can't wait till those kids get here. <laughs> All twelve of them. Uh, yeah. I think I think the Wii U. Like I I look at the Wii U and I'm like, wow, that that just was a fucking clusterfuck in every way. But I'm like, yeah, but it had some good games on it though, didn't it? And I can't hate any console that has Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze as its native habitat. So, yeah. uh, I, I, I'm just, I just, I just want to be clear. Like, if you are of the GameCube generation, if your fondest memories are of the GameCube, this episode isn't meant to uh, tear that down for you. We, we're, we're here to point out the perspective of the N64 generation and to maybe set some historical um, records straight. Uh, we're, we're, we're going to be talking about some sales numbers and some figures. And 
Also, just give Sounds you the... Sounds very exciting. We're, we're going to give you the lay of the land in the 1990s and how things actually felt. Because, it, like, I've been talking about secondhand knowledge, right? And so, mm-hmm. I, I think if you were too young or you weren't even alive yet during the N64's heyday, it, it's hard to really get a gauge on what the system meant to the wider culture unless you were there because it's one thing to just look at statistics or like I said secondhand information and form an opinion on there but it's you're not really getting the full picture and it's a complicated situation the n64 and i don't know like i you know we, we were talking about this back in september but i feel like narratives have a way of setting in in online discourse and then they're very hard to shake and i'm not expecting that we're going to change anybody's opinion here but yeah the only thing that's going to change the discourse is just time yeah that's what really does it yeah but but it's just one of those things where and i'm encountering this a little bit myself as far as the like cosmology of the DKU and rare fandom as that evolves and younger generations pull in because I'm now encountering, as I've said, Banjo Kazooie fans who have never played Diddy Kong racing, who were never exposed to Diddy Kong racing. And they look at me like I am uh, standing nude on the streets, you know, uh, with, with my, uh, my full-time job, uh, screaming nonsense when I say that, oh yeah, no, Banjo is part of the same universe as Donkey Kong. He was actually introduced <laughs> as Diddy's friend. And they think, what are you talking? Yeah, he was in Diddy Kong Racing. I know that much, but that's just the character crossover. That's that's nothing. And, and yeah, like- I know what you mean because it's like, at a time that seems long that that doesn't seem long enough ago to be considered anything like historical to us, we remember when that was very much the consensus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then you but, and, and then all of a sudden so, you've got younger generations coming up who have no recollection of that, have an entirely different frame of reference and <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're having to defend your positions with when just the other day it was just accepted just wisdom. The other day. Yeah. I mean yeah, I, I, th- th- there there's a quote I often think of that goes something like one thing that nobody warns you about turning 30 is that is that you're going to start hearing people younger than you talk confidently and passionately <laughs> about historical v- events that you can personally rem- remember very well and be completely wrong about them. Yeah. That's but- <laughs> that's spot on. I mean that that is that is chillingly accurate to how I feel some days. And I think you and I are a little bit odd, Josh, in that we've and I'm not saying we were any different when we were younger, right? But I, no, I feel like we've, not. we've also we've also always been intrigued by history and, and students mm-hmm. there, therefore of history, where we've always wanted to know like the 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 full story behind something. And even before Wikipedia was a thing, like I would love doing research on something and and trying to get an idea of an existing property or whatever that that existed long before I was born you know tr- trying to get a full understanding of it and um 
So, you know, like you like you said earlier about how it can be difficult to sort of glean what it was like about things that like, you know, like it's one thing to say play Super Mario 64, but like you can't if if you weren't if you didn't experience it at the time, then you have no way of like ensconcing yourself in that context. You can't experience it in the context of the video game industry in 1996. Yeah. And I can relate to that very much because that's exactly what the NES was to me. That mm-hmm. was the NES was entirely before my time. So yeah. going back and playing in 60 or going back and playing NES games, I was all like just just playing them on my own, I would kind of be like, "Well, okay, this this is definitely it, it, they seemed much, 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 much older than they really were because of how quickly the gaming industry, like, evolved back then. Um, but it really took getting online and, like, seeing, sort of trying to see them through the lens of the people who did, who did grow up with them uh, for me to, like, get a better appreciation of them. And I think that's also why I really like laying out the full context of the time period whenever I do a spotlight episode series Mm -hmm. on a video game here on The Conversation. Because, yeah, I I spend that entire first installment telling you exactly what the situation was in that given year. And I feel like like you can't separate that from the context of the game itself. And it's almost essential, critical to understand <laughs> why a game is the way it is and why it hit the way it hit without and we are very similar in that regard because yeah. i do that with my videos as you well do. like i spend the first 10 15 sometimes more than that like the first part of the video is always let's establish the historical context here's where i was here's where the industry was and i get these kiki comments sometimes like the review starts at 15 minutes and 26 no it doesn't that's <laughs> yeah. important yeah I that's also I mean, the hardest part of the entire video to, video to edit but like it's the most rewarding if I could be honest with you, Josh, that's why I became a fan of yours. But back before <laughs> that makes we, a lot of sense. Yeah. Back before we became friends, and I just, you know, I watched your first video. I was like, oh my god, this guy gets it. <laughs> and so it, it just, yeah. I mean, we're 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 very similar, and and that's why we've always been on the same wavelength. Is we're just coded the exact same way when it comes to this kind of stuff. So that's why I feel like we can kind of give an even keeled reading of even if it's our own history i Mm -hmm. i feel like we are the ones who can do it justice because we have a respect for how things exactly went down and and so that's that's what we're doing here and and this isn't really like i said going to change any minds it's just going to be smug validation for those who feel the way we do but well, you know, I said earlier that, like, some people seem to think, oh, like, the, 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 the 90s kids, they're not even around anymore. And talking to other people my age or, or, or people a little older, like, I think what it really is, more often than not, it's not that you're not still around or that you don't see it. It's just that you know you can't change anybody's mind mm-hmm. and that it's pointless to, like, not that it's pointless to try, but, like, I, I guess you just feel like you're past the point of seeing a lot of value in arguing with people about things on the internet. Yeah. So I, it's, I genuinely don't argue with people that much. E- even from yeah. my little uh, stoop of DK Vine, I, I don't use it as an argumentative tool to bludgeon people with. If people try yeah, to exactly. start something with me, I just usually ignore them. Or, or maybe I'll gently push back, but... <laughs> I, uh, 
if people like about once a week now i will get uh, a comment or something on social media and they said hey you know uh, greg mail said he didn't intend for banjo kazooie to be the same universe as donkey kong so they're not in the same shared universe you're wrong delete your site and yeah exactly and, and i'm just like you're just trying to get a rise out of me and i'm gonna ignore you because life's too short you know, it Pretty just, much, yeah. I, it, it's, I, it's not, it, it's not that we're not still around. It's more like just that we don't see, I don't really see the point in taking flame bait anymore or engaging no. in flame wars. Cause it's just, it's not like, it's not a good use of my time or energy. No, I would, I'd rather do something positive. I, I would rather, uh, contribute joy to this <laughs> universe. And if I can do that with DK Vine, it's a silly kind of joy, but I, I still feel like I'm doing it nonetheless. And yeah, if people don't want to join in in my reindeer games holiday reference, <laughs> see, I can be I can be festive. Uh, then you know, fine, that's fine. This isn't going to be for everyone. But if anybody right. who does, you know, want want to come along on this journey with us, hey, welcome. <laughs> so, so I guess we should we should then go go ahead and get into contextualizing the Nintendo sixty four as it was in the mid nineties. Yeah, yeah, and um, th- this is, I, I feel like, I, I I even get these, into these arguments with my friends lately, like, because there there is this just kind of set in stone narrative now, and it's true, it, it is a true narrative, but it, it misses the nuance of the time, where the PlayStation was the most successful console of the mid to late 1990s. And yes. um, because of that, the N64 was a failure at worst and a f- fledgling non-entity at best. <laughs> and I don't think any t- take there is right or accurate. It, yes, the PlayStation was obviously the most successful console, but that comes with shades of gray, man. It, <laughs> it's, it's not so uh, black and white. Yeah, like, um, the PlayStation... I guess, let me, let me, can I just walk you through, like, my personal context of, of experiencing the N64? Yeah, and then I will take you through my personal experience of uh, the PlayStation. Oh, this is going to be great then. Is, <laughs> I'm looking for this is this is exactly the kind of content that we like that we like each other's content for. There we go. It's perfect. All right. So here's here's what's kind of funny, and I kind of had this revelation a while back thinking about this. Is that the N64 more than any other console? And I, I mean, I was a huge. I was a frankly spoiled, rotten gamer kid. I was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was uh like my gr- I was my grandmother's only grandchild and so I just got pretty much like not not literally everything I wanted but like pretty much um but despite like you know I had a Genesis I had a Super Nintendo I had an N64 I eventually had a PlayStation I had a, I had a Saturn but more than anything else the N64 was the console of my childhood it was the console that I played more than any other, that I had more games for than any other, and the one that, like, really defined 
um, that I, that I am rooted in more than any other. And that's really strange to me. It was kind of funny to realize that about myself because I have this thing where like, I think it might be the Sega fan in me, Mm -hmm. but like, I always seem to want to make myself part of the out group or the underdogs. (laughs) (laughs) Like I always, I always want to be, want to feel like I'm fighting an uphill battle. I I can Um, understand that for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, like, when, like, s- about six or seven years ago, when, when N64 Nostalgia was at its peak, I was always like, oh, these kids, <laughs> these kids in there uh, talking up Donkey Kong 64 probably never even played the Super NES games. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, even at that time, I saw myself as being as being older than the, than the thing that was the most nostalgic thing in the world. Yeah. But I look back on that time now and I'm like, a lot of those people were probably my age. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the, quite frankly, the truth of it is we're probably past the crest of peak early 2000s nostalgia now. A lot of the GameCube kids are in their 30s at this point. Oh, God. So, yeah. <laughs> Think about that. So, uh... Yeah, it was it was just kind of funny to think, but but I think what really made the difference for me there, and what what par, a part of that influence was that, like even back then, even like as a as a even as early as like twelve or thirteen years old, I was always way 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 more into like quote unquote old tech than my peers. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people in like a lot of my peer group, like the PlayStation or the Nintendo sixty four, but never the Saturn. Uh, one of those was their first video game console. Like that, that was the first one they'd ever played. Um, I got my Genesis at the very end of kindergarten. And what was, and like, that was also about the time that I started reading gaming magazines. And, uh, most of what I read in them went all the way over my head. But the big thing that I really remember, even as early as 94, and it was going on well before this even, was that everyone knew and everybody couldn't stop talking and nobody could, like, what was being looked forward to was the next generation. They were always talking about the next generation of consoles. They were always talking about uh, Project Reality or Sega's next console. Mm. Uh, and, like, a lot of what was on the market right then, it was like, okay, well, this is kind of passe. Like, oh boy, another, yet another, uh, <laughs> yet another 2D platformer, but it's the next generation that's really going to change things. And then you had the PlayStation and Saturn come out in 94 in Japan, in 95 in the Americas. And from that point forward, what what you kind of started seeing was at least, you know, this is like what, what what I'm pulling from here is memories of reading magazines from back then and the very, very, very early internet, because my family was like a very early adopter of the internet. We <laughs> we had Prodigy before I even knew what the internet was. And once the PlayStation and Saturn were out, there became this, there came this like big, enormous hype cycle that like, yeah, the PlayStation's cool. The Saturn, Sega's got some pro- Sega's already having some issues with that. But what you're really going to want to wait for is the, is the N64 and Super Mario 64. And that was sort of the first time that I experienced what has become like a very common part of uh, gaming discourse, the hype cycle. Yeah. 
because for what seemed like to me at the time just an eternity i was reading about mario 64 i was seeing screenshots of mario 64 um the the early internet had this sort of tongue-in-cheek group that called themselves the mario monks and and their uh their life philosophy that they espoused was that you would be better off not buying a playstation or saturn right now don't don't be don't be too don't be too lustful don't don't waste your money don't waste your purity you'll be happier and well and more well off if you save yourself for the nintendo 64 <laughs> and like that that was that's like always something that i so like it's so emblematic of like what the internet was like in 1996 mm-hmm. <laughs> just this this very tongue in cheek like group that made the rounds on Usenet and AOL. It it wasn't just but, a rage filled, yeah, <laughs> clickbaity death spiral. Oh, I mean, we we still definitely had flame wars back then. But oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but after all that, the the you know after again what seemed like an eternity to me, the system finally came out and. I somehow convinced my mother the day it came out, one, that I was sick, and I wasn't really very sick at all, (laughs) and two, that we needed to go to Blockbuster and rent one, and I don't know why, but she let me do that. Wow. (laughs) So I played Super Mario 64 on the day it was released, and I I held that controller on the day it was released. Yeah. And And I got to experience it in that context, and it was the... The first 3D game I'd ever played, I didn't know about Star Fox. Um, I guess I'd played Wolfenstein 3D, but you know what? It was the first poly- polygonal 3D game I'd ever played or ever seen, and it lived up to all the to all that they said it would be and more in my mind. It was I could not imagine video games ever ever being better than that. And uh, I, I got my own N64 that Christmas. Um, absolutely loved it like played the absolute fuck out of it um the n64 like throughout its entire life kind of had this it, it had a reputation online and and in the magazines as being a system that didn't that got like one or two or three really great games per year and didn't have a lot to play besides that but as a kid that worked out just absolutely perfectly because i could only really get one or two <laughs> or so games a year yeah yeah so, so and and this is something that as a nintendo kid up until i basically shifted my allegiance to rare um but as a nintendo kid you know um i didn't really process that complaint and and i look back now and I see that that was a common complaint, especially in magazines like GamePro, EGM. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're just reading Nintendo Power, Nintendo Power is not going to be like, wow, Nintendo's not really releasing much, are they? But <laughs> it, it felt like the games we were getting hit harder. It it was, I mean, and, and that was actually their mantra during that time is... Uh, quality over quantity and i don't know if, oh yeah you heard that all the time yeah and i don't know if that was just uh you know something that they came up with to explain away their failures but it 
it it sunk in as a kid and i was like well yeah you know the the games we're getting mean a whole lot more and it was an event whenever a big league nintendo game came out on the n64 it was like something all your friends were going to be trying out they're going to be renting it we're going to be playing it together Uh, if we like it enough we're going to be buying it i mean it Mm -hmm. that that was it i mean it wasn't a big deal like you said when you're a kid and you don't have a whole lot of income, and I don't have a whole lot of income now that I'm an adult, but, you know, you you have a lot less spending power when you're, you know, on a fixed allowance or you have to negotiate with your parental units, so... Right. <laughs> oh, God, parental units. I yeah. haven't heard that. I haven't heard that since I was a teenager. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm taking it back. I'm taking it back to our, to our childhood, Josh, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it it did work out perfectly well for the youth. If you were a Nintendo youth, then, hey, there, there were really no complaints. Yeah, there there weren't. And, I, and again, I suspect that the experience that I remember having just purely within myself and among my peer group with the N64 and what you're talking about there where, you know, everybody was going to get the new game. Everybody's going to be playing it to like, from my perspective, it seemed like everyone I knew had an N64. And it's, if I didn't, if I wasn't on the internet at that time, and boy, looking back, eight year olds probably shouldn't have been on the internet even in 96. <laughs> <laughs> but if yeah. I hadn't been, been on the internet I, and or reading like magazines outside of Nintendo Power, it would have, I can totally see why it would have seemed to me like, Yeah, dude, everybody loves this thing. This is the console everybody has. And I think that is exactly how a lot of people who grew up with the GameCube remember it. Yeah, so first of all, I would like to apologize to any eight-year-olds who discovered DK Vine (laughs) back in the day. I would do things differently (laughs) now had I known the awesome responsibility I apparently had. But I was was too young to be reading DK Vine at like 12. I I was I was just a dumb kid myself, basically. And I thought I I thought I was, you know, I I know better now. But hey, um, yeah, you're right. Like, so let let me let me let me I said I was going to explain my relationship to the PlayStation, but I think I have to backtrack a little bit and explain the N64 because I am a few years older than you, Josh. Yeah, I thought that would be interesting, too, because you like I have written in my notes here, like Heil may be more familiar than me because that's the thing. Like, let let me just to finish my story. Yeah. What kind of happened was like before the N64 came out, I remember everyone was was it seemed like everybody was just heralding it as this is what was going to be this revolution this was going to be like the last console that we would ever need because it was going to be that good and that powerful and that amazing so it came out and that's exactly how it hit me and then i remember this so specifically that i picked up a magazine in february of 1997 and the opening blurb was talking about like how the n64 was struggling next to the playstation and I was like, the PlayStation? What? Yeah, yeah. Like I've, I'd heard of it, but I was like, really? That's not Sega or Nintendo. How how are they doing any good? So obviously, you know, I I am of a similar perspective. Um, I was a Nintendo kid uh, when I was maybe four years old. Um, we got a Nintendo Entertainment System, and by this point, the Nintendo, the NES had been out for several years. I mean, this is before the SNES, but it was relatively late in in the 
the life of the NES, which, you know, was, was a long life, um, for, for a console, but, um, especially we, at that time. We, yeah, we, we got an NES and, um, but I, I was like four years old. So this, this is the first like true experience with the Nintendo system that I had. And I got a Super Nintendo for one of my birthdays. I, I, I could probably figure it out right now, but I'm not going to do the math. But uh, I, I got a Super Nintendo maybe a year or two after it had been released in the West. And so for, so for a long time, like, the Super Nintendo was like the center of my universe. And I I played it religiously. And then Donkey Kong Country came out in 1994 and everything changed for me. Because as I've often explained either on this podcast or elsewhere in the DK Vine ecosystem, Donkey Kong Country came out and just completely obliterated my interest in anything else because Donkey Kong Country just so happened to perfectly align with everything I've ever wanted in a video game. It was just perfectly tailored for my sensibilities and I was done. Like nothing else could compare and all I cared about was the next Donkey Kong game, the next entry in the series, what would come from it, what would spin off from it. I I stopped caring about Mario. It was it was basically true love, right? Like I had yeah. fallen head <laughs> over heels and everything else was just cold and uh a few shades paler now compared to Donkey Kong Country. So when Donkey Kong Country came out, it was also paired a lot with the hype. For Nintendo's next console, then known in the West as the Nintendo Ultra 64. And so you couldn't escape the discussion between two, because if Nintendo could do what they're doing with Donkey Kong Country on the Super Nintendo, well, the Nintendo Ultra 64 would be like nothing we've ever seen before. Mm-hmm. And that's that, that was kind of the pitch. Like, and we yeah. we didn't really at least I certainly didn't really understand how how pre-rendered graphics worked. So, like, right. you know, you just bought it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, like, when, when they first saw footage of Donkey Kong Country, they thought it was going to be for the N64. They were mm-hmm. stupefied that it was for the Super Nintendo and that Nintendo wasn't announcing their next-gen console yet. So, anyway, like, obviously, all I cared about was what was next for Donkey Kong. And so if the next Donkey Kong game was going to be for the Game Boy, well, then I was going to be all about that. And then, oh, my God, they're making Donkey Kong Country 2. <laughs> and that's all I cared about. But I've also, I was interested in the N64, the NU64, as we knew it then, because I wanted to know what Donkey Kong would look like on the NU64. I wanted to know what Rare could do on that new piece of hardware. So it was more like, you know, I'm not as invested in, in the next-gen hardware because with next-gen hardware also came the struggle of convincing your parents you needed it. And that was a whole other battle to be waged that was a lot more severe than just getting a new <laughs> game, which, you, you know, coincidentally, always timed with my birthday. A new Donkey Kong Country is coming out. In late November? Oh, lucky me. I was born in late November. What are the odds? Yeah. So, 
like the the end of U sixty four. I was like, yeah, that will be cool when we get to it. But I want a whole trilogy on the Super Nintendo. And again, lucky me, I got my trilogy. But the uh, the, the Nintendo Ultra sixty four was obviously like always in the back of my brain, and I was always daydreaming about what it, games would look like on it and what Donkey Kong would look like on it, and. You know, I basically hyped a version of Donkey Kong 64 that would never actually exist on the Nintendo 64. There'd be no way it could be done. I was pretty much envisioning the current gen when I was daydreaming about what Donkey Kong could look like on the N64. Because, yeah, the N64 was built up to be this miracle machine. As you said, it would be the last console any of us would ever need because... Oh my god, they're going to have the 64 disk drive and they're going to have the expansion pack. Oh, this thing yeah, is going like, to it's going to go well into the future. And like that's that part of the reason for that too wasn't just that we were like drinking the Kool-Aid. Mm. It was also because like I said like I said earlier the the rate at which video like like graphical graphical fidelity and and like gameplay design the rate at which those things were evolving made it seem totally plausible that oh yeah that, that like you could actually get there like if you think about it like from the release of the Super Nintendo to the release of Donkey Kong Country was only 3 years so in 3 years you went from you know, a game that looked like Super Mario World, not Duncan on Super Mario World. Super Mario World holds up well and it looks great. But you went from that to Donkey Kong Country. Yeah. In in the space of three years. So, like, used to you would look at, like, the first generation of a console's games as sort of like this tantalizing preview of, like, like how do I put this? Okay, well, this is the conversation. I'll say it like this. <laughs> Mario six when Banjo Kazooie came out, uh-huh. I distinctly remember, and this this was less than two years later. You know, Mario sixty four, like I said, it hit me the way it did. I thought it was the best thing I'd ever seen. When Banjo Kazooie came out, I remember the the summer that I was playing that for the first time. I vividly remember just deciding just to see. I put my Mario sixty four cartridge back in the console and like ran around the castle grounds. And in that moment, it didn't seem like it held up at all. <laughs> I mean, yeah, glorified tech demo, Super Mario 64. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, Banjo-Kazooie looks amazing compared to just what had come out on the on the console a year and a half prior. I mean. Exactly. And that's, the, like, and, within, within, a, within a couple of years, like the standards for for video game graphics and design would just like even even within the same console generation would just get turned over like seemingly like seven or eight times yeah yeah and, and so the sky it felt like the sky was the limit like nowadays we're just used to sort of this stagnant status quo where there hasn't been a radical leap forward with how games look you, you know, for, for a while mm-hmm. now, like we're, we're, I don't think we're ever going to make such a leap again as we did during this time period. And, and at least not as long as games continue being, continue taking the form that we, that we know them as right now. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. I, I, I'm sure, you know, once we have uh, our Neuralinks <laughs> implanted into our brains uh, on the backs of all the hundreds of monkey corpses then you know we'll just we'll just have video games directly uh inputted into our cerebral cortexes and then we'll you know <laughs> yes. we'll have games that look 
like we've never imagined or never could imagine before we became part of the video game itself. But but, but yeah. that factor is something that I feel like is kind of lost among some younger gamers that I noticed because, like, I saw a video a while back where they were comparing the graphics of a PS2 game that was released in 2001 to the graphics of a PS2 game released in 2007 and being like, why couldn't they make it look like this? And it's because, you know, it was a six-year difference, and that meant a lot in those days. Yeah, for sure. But it was exciting, you know, because it, yes. it really did feel like we were on the cusp of the future, and it felt like video games were only going to keep getting better and of course in our in our child brains we didn't think about things like dev time or the amount of hours that would go into video games if they kept looking better and and kept looking more realistic and kept becoming bigger and bigger how that would break the back of the industry <laughs> to, to uh, we be were, fair publishers often didn't also didn't think about that sort of thing no that no, was part so, of the problem yeah yeah but when when you're a dumb kid and and you know summer lasts forever and the grass yeah. is always green <laughs> and uh, the air tastes oh so sweet then yeah it it's going to um be thrilling and mm -hmm. so yeah i mean as a nintendo kid because i was a nintendo kid i remember feeling like i was personally insulted when Sega ran those Genesis commercials attacking the Super Nintendo, I was like, how are, <laughs> dare they go after me like that? I, I, like, ouch. Uh, but I, you know, I was a Nintendo kid, stuck with Nintendo until I discovered my one true love in the <laughs> Donkey Kong universe. And then it was time for the N64. And at the same time, I remember going into an electronics store. I, I honestly don't know if it was like... So, I, I don't even remember what store it was. They no longer exist. But there was, they had a, a robust section for video games, right? And mm -hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't um, Circuit City. Um, I, I, I remember Circuit City. I remember my Circuit City. But th this was some other... Maybe it was like a local electronics store that no longer existed. But... I, I went into it, and I remember it, it was right around the time it launched. I remember seeing the PlayStation. I remember seeing a demo of the PlayStation. And so when you're a kid in the 1990s, generally, uh, you're, you're a typical kid. And, you know, my, my case, living in the United States. And mm -hmm. there was Nintendo, and there was Sega. Right. All right. <laughs> there, there, there were other video game consoles and companies, but they weren't really real, if you know what I mean. Like, yeah, I knew of Atari because my family also owned uh, uh, an old wood paneled Atari we got at a yard sale at some point. And, and I knew of the history of Atari and I knew that somehow Atari was still around making things. But Atari, I was like, they're, they're kind of irrelevant. They, they they cease to be. It's Nintendo and Sega. They are the true constants of the video game industry. And, and at that very moment, there was I'm sure there were people on Usenet uh, a decade older than you who were going, man, just hasn't been the same since Nintendo showed up and ruined everything. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Like, I absolutely. Um, I'm not but, joking there. I, there. There definitely were. Yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> 
you know, from my perspective, I see this this PlayStation, uh, and I'm thinking this is just going to be like the 3DO. This is going to be like the the Jaguar. It's going to be like uh, whatever, you know, like all all of these consoles that I would see advertisements for in the peripheral, and I none of my friends would actually ever own. Right. right. My friends only own Nintendo or Sega systems. Anybody I knew. And therefore, my reality was set. Like, the world outside didn't make sense. I assumed that the people who own these other video game systems were, like, eccentric millionaires who just <laughs> just acquired them to have them and to play well, them. Well, if you, if you owned a Neo Geo, you pretty much had to be. <laughs> yes, yes. But, um... I the the PlayStation was just like I was like oh just another one of these right so I didn't think much of it yeah the the failure of all of these companies that had come in and tried to compete in that space and just had flamed out immediately uh primed us to sort of I guess not take the PlayStation seriously yeah exactly and I mean and I mean that was and I I mean like us specifically I mean us as gamers because a lot of the, the a lot of the press did take it very seriously because they they had a better I think they had a better handle on what kind of a pedigree Sony had. Right. And obviously at the time I didn't know any of the history of how the PlayStation came to be and how it mm-hmm. essentially spawned out of a failed partnership with Nintendo how Nintendo were effectively the architects of their own market share the the demise of their own market share where you know it had had things not soured um that then history would have been drastically different but it was probably around 1997 that you know i i was desperate for news on the Donkey Kong game for the N64. Mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. keep in mind, this is before Banjo-Kazooie w- was announced, before Conker was announced, before Diddy Kong Racing was, was known. And so all I really had for the N64, as far as Donkey Kong goes, was his appearance in Mario Kart 64. So I was thirsty. I was... I, and Nintendo Power wasn't saying anything, and I didn't expect them to, because even though I was a subscriber to Nintendo Power, I read it religiously, I knew that I wouldn't get anything but corporate propaganda from Nintendo Power. I was like, I need to go outside of Nintendo Power to get the true details on on the Donkey Kong game that I know Rare is making. I know they're making it. And this is also in the time where I was between AOL subscriptions. So 1997, I was offline. I my mm-hmm. my family tried a trial in '96, and this was when they they charged per minute or whatever per hour, and, per hour I believe per hour. Okay, and and my my dad was like, "It's not worth it, no way." And so we this we, internet fad doesn't have a chance, right? So I, I I was cut off, and then didn't get back on until 1998. A lot changed in that year where my my dad was like, "Oh, I guess I guess maybe you should have it, you know, for school and such." And I was like, "Sure." For school, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> a year later, DK Vine is launched. Um, but I, I, I started to get magazines like EGM, and I would thumb through them even before this in like stores. But I would start buying them, and you would occasionally get in the rumor mills. Yeah, rare, rare is working on Donkey Kong, or or this, or that, or the other. And so it'd be like, aha, aha. And I'd take it to all my friends and be like, see, see, it's true. (laughs) So 
Anyway, I started noticing that the coverage of the PlayStation seemed to be disproportionate to what I assumed the PlayStation was. And yep. the the <laughs> way they were talking about the PlayStation didn't really add up to my experience in my peer group, where mm-hmm. we did, we didn't know anybody who had a PlayStation. It it wasn't a thing. And granted, like I was in early middle school, right? I I I was like on the cusp of being a teenager, but but not quite there yet. And so mm-hmm. I probably wasn't in the. Um, the exact demographic that hit so hard for the PlayStation when it launched. Um, because it yeah, did, but, it did sort of take off with the older crowd first, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's like the, the whole story of how the PlayStation came to be and how it thrived is just, that is just a fascinating story unto itself. But I think one thing it did really well. And one reason that it got so much positive press is because it really was this like, I don't want to use the phrase dream machine, but it was such a good console for like older gamers. Mm-hmm. Uh, games, it was very easy to develop for games. It was very easy to publish games on for that matter. Uh, thanks to the CD format and, and thanks to Sony's like the, the way that they, that they would license it. So it like in comparison, like, you know, earlier we talked about the N64 Every six months or so would just have this legendary genre, sometimes industry redefining game come out. But the PlayStation would get like two or three really good games a month. Yeah. Yeah. And so like the PlayStation, even if it had like cracked that shell of my peer group, I think the only game that would have ever really drawn my eye at the time would have been Crash Bandicoot. Um, (laughs) Just because of the age I was at, because of what I was interested in. And that being said, I totally get why the, uh, the Gen X crowd, why older high school students, college age students, why those who had grown up um, on the NES and play the mm-hmm. SNES and the Genesis at a later age than I did, why they would then graduate to the PlayStation and bypass the N64 or and, and the Saturn uh, completely. You know, I I get it. And, I, and I'm not dismissing that narrative. Um, but I, I think we, w- when we look at the way the history shook out, we are creating this binary n- narrative of... Oh, PlayStation success, N64 failure. And, and I right. think the point we're trying to get at is there was a whole lot more nuance, especially depending on your age at the time. And not just your age, but also just where, where you lived even. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's important. That's important. Difference. Yeah. Because do, do, do we want to get, do we want to get into the stats at all? Well, I, I feel like we have to. And normally I don't like to bring math into the conversation <laughs> because you know we're we're a fanciful show and we talk about lore and story and character development and we rarely talk about things like numbers that go into yeah. uh video games but i think this is important because it really does sort of crystallize where the n64 was a failure where it was not a failure and why it can't be dismissed as a complete failure. 
Yeah, right? because there was there was a region where the N sixty four pretty much was it, it was absolutely a bomb, especially yeah. relative to, to Nintendo's previous console, and that was Japan. Um, right. In Japan, the Super Famicom, they're what they call the Super Nintendo over there, sold uh, over 17 million units. But the N64 dropped dropped so far from that and only sold five and a half million. Five and a half million. So, yeah, I mean, I, if we were just looking at Nintendo's native country, then mm-hmm. absolutely the N64 train wreck. <laughs> Absolute flaming Tesla, <laughs> but uh... and um, and part of that was um, a lot of the games that really caught on over here, in particular Rare's games, but also Goldeneye. Well, I mean Goldeneye Double so the games that the, the DKU games. <laughs> I almost said Goldeneye yeah. wasn't a Rare game. I was you know what say, I mean? <laughs> uh, I'm actually Josh. Uh, Rare <laughs> of course also Goldeneye developed Goldeneye Double O Seven. Now all the good ones then left Rare <laughs> to form Free Radical. So uh, nonetheless, I, 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 the importance of the importance of Goldeneye, particularly in Western territories, cannot be overstated. Goldeneye. Goldeneye outsold Ocarina of Time, okay? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if people understand that today. <laughs> Look, everybody had Goldeneye. I had Goldeneye. I mean, <laughs> Gold, Goldeneye was inescapable. And I think Goldeneye actually kept the N64 in contention among older crowds. Like, e- it, even it those, absolutely did, yeah. Yeah, e- even those who might have a PlayStation... They got an N64 just for Goldeneye because there was nothing like it on the PlayStation at the time. Yeah, like, people... It's kind of funny um, talking about the way that the discourse... You know, we were talking earlier about the way that the discourse evolved over time. I remember, I think it was around 2011, there was there were all these articles coming out about how the console that college-aged people were bringing with them from home way more than any other was the N64. And I was in college at that time, and that was certainly my experience. Like uh, the school, I, I worked at the, I worked for the school newspaper, and we had an N sixty four set up in the office that we would play Smash sixty four on. Mm-hmm. So, but it's kind of funny because people ten plus years older than me, um, I've also heard who were in college, you know, in in the in the late nineties, I've heard them describe the exact same sort of thing, like staying up up all night in their dorms playing Goldeneye. Like, that was, for for the older crowd, that was the game to have on the N64. Yeah, and I, I think it's an open question, like, how successful would the N64 have been without Goldeneye? Goldeneye was, like, a killer app for Absolutely. the console, and... I think it, it was it was a combination of factors, but Goldeneye, uh, Goldeneye kept it in contention with an older crowd while the uh, the first party Nintendo games like Ocarina of Time and Super Mario 64 certainly kept the N64 viable for its usual crowd. And then Rare's other games uh, re- really uh, helped booster it as well. But yeah, you mentioned like... Okay, so the N64, you said uh, 5.54 million units in Japan. In Japan. Yeah. yeah. Which um, is like about 12 million less than the than the Super Famicom it sold there. Yeah, so, so, so the... Big, big drop-off. The Super Famicom sold 17.17 17 million units in Japan, which yeah. is only down a slight bit from the original Famicom, 19 million some units. 
Yeah, so, like that's and that's kind of remarkable. Like, despite all the increased competition in the 16-bit era, the Super Famicom still sold almost as good as well as the Famicom had in Japan. And it's, I, it's the N64 where the bottom dropped out there. And also, I, I think a large part of why it wasn't successful in Japan is because of the lack of third-party support for for the system, oh, yeah. and because of the lack of uh, RPGs. I mean, that that was was a huge factor in why it didn't have the market share that that it did. And it's kind of funny too because in ter- in in terms of the Japanese market, Sega like kind of swapped positions with Nintendo between the fourth gen and the fifth gen. Because <clears> in the fourth gen, the Mega Drive was was very much an also ran in Japan. It 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 buckled under under the competition from the Super Famicom and the PC Engine. The PC Engine, which was uh, our Turbo Graphics sixteen, that was seen as the Super Famicom's main competition in Japan. In the next generation, it was just the opposite. The PlayStation and the Saturn were the two big, <laughs> big competing consoles, and the N64 was the also ran. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, here the Genesis was far more successful than the TurboGrafx-16. It it is the it, to, to this day, I would say the Super Nintendo versus the Genesis, at least for people our age, is like the definitive <laughs> classic console rivalry. Yeah. Um, Whereas over here in Western, in the Western market, then the Saturn was just absolutely obliterated by the PlayStation in 64. Yeah, it, it was, it was so funny because I remember the Saturn coming out and thinking like, all right, here we go. Round two, you know? Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. And then it just nothing happened. And I was like, wait, is the Saturn? Nobody's talking about the Saturn. What, what happened? <laughs> yeah, I- I, I said earlier the N64 was my childhood console. It was the most prolific console of my childhood. But the Saturn probably would have been that if they'd gotten a Sonic game on it. Yeah, I... I like, felt... I would have almost definitely skipped Mario 64 and gone for Sonic if they had done that for for, for Holiday 96. So, obviously, I, I've never been a big Sonic guy, but I've always been peripherally fascinated by Sonic. And so I was just waiting to see what the Sonic game on the Saturn would look like. I was like, oh, I, you know, I bet it'll look really cool. I, I, right. (laughs) Nothing. Uh, Night, Nights was cool. I, 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 Nights is great. Yeah. yeah. Nights is great, but it was never gonna (laughs) compete with Mario the way that Sonic had. No. I, and I love Nights. Nights, Nights freaking rules, but like, you know, you just, it wasn't the same kind of game. It wasn't gonna be that kind of a killer app. Oftentimes in in these discussions, I feel like because Japan is is Nintendo's um, home territory, mm-hmm. oftentimes the narratives get locked into what happened in Japan, and the rest of the world kind of gets brushed aside as if that also is an important part of the story. And I feel like with the N sixty four, that's outrageous because this is this is where. I, I think the uh, the idea that the N64 was a failure completely gets dismantled because, Josh, in North America, mm-hmm. the N64, you know, it's, it, now, now, granted, North America is far larger than Japan, so things generally sell more here, right? Yeah, like, <laughs> uh, it, it's not really fair to compare the numbers that 
uh, that something sells in North America to Japan. We're, and that's not what we're doing here. We're, 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 you want to compare the same country to the same country. Yeah, we're, we're weighing an entire continent against a country. But, yeah, um, right. <laughs> so, okay. In North America, the N64 sold 20 million units. Mm-hmm. And, again, that's... that's 15 million units more than in Japan, but that's only 2 million units less than the Super Nintendo sold in North right. America. So and similar, similar story for Europe. It sold about 2 million units less in Europe. Yeah. So that is not a steep drop off at all. Um, when, when you factor in that the Super NES sold 11 million units less than the NES... Uh, mm-hmm. in, in North America, it, the NES sold 33 million units. The SNES sold around almost 23 million. So, right. um, I mean, that sounds like a steep drop off there, but also the NES was around for a long time. And, and it was pretty much the only successful yes. console of its generation. Yeah. So it, it didn't, at least have, in North America. In it, Europe, it was a different story. Yeah. It didn't have a, Sega Genesis equivalent to to go to right. war with. So it, it was pretty much the uncontested ruler of the video game industry for the last half of the 80s and the early 90s. So, yeah, I mean, the N64 basically retained much of the Super Nintendo audience. Exactly. And or at least it had a, it, it had a very similar audience. It was... And that's that's kind of like if you look at the worldwide sales numbers, then yeah, Super Nintendo sold forty nine million, N sixty four sold thirty two, almost thirty three million. Yeah. But the vast, vast majority of that drop off is the is because of how much worse it did in Japan. To us playing it in the West at the time, or at least in North America, the N sixty four was more or less just as prolific as the Super Nintendo had been the previous generation. It, it really was. It, it was ubiquitous with gaming i mean and we can talk about our bubbles right like yeah. bubbles uh, usually within age ranges because when i was in middle school it was all about the n64 when i got into high school people started getting playstation like that that bubble was eventually burst my my peer mm-hmm. group eventually got playstations and then you know the dreamcast when when the dreamcast launched i, I had friends who had the dreamcast but oh, I'm for, so jealous. Nobody else got a Dreamcast that I knew. I I, I played it a little bit once. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, so yeah, as I got older, that that sort of uh, waned a little bit. But for the the time period from launch up until like through '98, yeah, the N64 was it, man. It it was just the console and the PlayStation was this weird thing that kind of existed in a parallel universe that I, I eventually had to acknowledge. Yeah, I guess the PlayStation is uh, doing all right. I guess it's, it's a success, but it, I it's didn't know doing anybody. all right in that it's completely crushing everything that ever came before it. So. Yeah. Yeah. So when you compare the N64 to the PlayStation, it looks like the N64 was a failure. We're we're just saying the PlayStation was such a runaway success that it's kind of skewing everything to be a perception. Because you wouldn't say the Sega Genesis 
was a failure. Um, But, you know, even if the Super Nintendo outsold it in the end. I think the N64 did all right for itself. It where, where Nintendo made mistakes was yeah alienating their third parties sort of salting the earth for their future <laughs> as far yeah. as uh you know fostering relationships with other studios but at the time you know it like like i said it didn't really matter and this is where nintendo started to fall into this niche and it wasn't really apparent then but it it became more apparent in the gamecube generation where nintendo was where you went to go to get Nintendo games, right. right? And and you had to go somewhere else to get everything else. And it started to shake out this way in this era, but it, it wasn't until the next generation, especially with the launch of the Xbox and the PS2, where, oh yeah, okay, so if I want the other video games, I have to go there, and then I'll go to the GameCube to get Nintendo titles. Right, and and just... And and speaking of that, to show how much of a difference, like, that shift really made, and I'm not saying this to, like, dunk on the GameCube at all, because right. here's the thing I said earlier, I'm, I, I always want to feel like I'm part of the outgroup. The truth of it is, in as much as you grew up with the N64, I grew up with the GameCube. I was yeah. the same age for the GameCube that you were for the N64, the, the, and it the, was my primary console at that age. The so. N64 to you is what the SNES is for me. You you have yeah, pretty much yeah, yeah. You have fond memories of it, but you your core associations aren't necessarily tied to it. Well, they they kind of are though. I was kind of getting into that earlier, where I was saying that like even as when I was like twelve or thirteen, I was very into old tech. Or what, yeah. my, what 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 my friend saw as old tech, I'd be like, "Hey, look, it's the Sega Nomad," and they'd be like, "That's so old. Why are you still playing that?" <laughs> but I think part of it was like the influence of the internet, because of course, on the late nineties internet, every everybody loved the NES. Every everybody loved espoused the virtues of two D and was very nostalgic for that. And I think that was very influential on me, and it caused me to go back and like bust out the Genesis and the Super Nintendo and be like, oh man, wait, I think I might like the like some of these games better than like the new stuff. Mm. Yeah, but anyway, what I was getting to, what I was getting at. The N64 sold almost as many units in North America as the GameCube did in the entire world. Yeah, so... <laughs> like, like, <laughs> Just in North America. We're, we're not here to dunk on the GameCube. Uh, I, I, like I said, could never hate any system that housed Star Fox Adventures. Um, <laughs> but, and even though I didn't get Donkey Kong Racing, I still have a lot of fond memories of the GameCube. I... I love the GameCube, in fact. Um, the, the GameCube just has this lovely feel to it. Whenever I boot it up and I get the little startup music and animation, it just makes me <laughs> happy, right? But what, what people are starting to think of the N64 in terms of, the GameCube actually was that as far as sales go. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it kind of okay. was. You, you want to talk about how poorly the N64 did in Japan? Let's talk about oh, how the yeah. GameCube did in Japan, Josh. Yeah. Yeah. So the GameCube sold 4 million units in Japan, down uh, 1.5 million from the N64s. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's, now, a, that's a steep drop-off percentage-wise. 
Now, in North America, I mean, it was even a more of a severe drop-off. Sold uh, 12.55 million units, which is, you know, down nearly 8 from the N64. Yep. Yeah, Europe uh, also suffered a little bit of a drop, uh, about 2 million units. And so, yeah, overall, the GameCube, uh, up until that point, was Nintendo's worst faring console. And, and ah, but here's the thing: if we like, we we're, we're skewing the data a little bit here because a little bit. the Wii. Not a lot of people remember this anymore, but the Wii was actually two GameCubes duct taped together, and it <laughs> sold over a hundred million units. So that's okay. actually an additional two hundred million GameCubes that were sold. You got me there. You got me there. Yep. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it, it's like again, it, it's not disparaging the GameCube. The GameCube is this lovely little piece of hardware. It's got. So many classic games on it. You can never yeah, take we're, that away we're, from we're, it. We're more, we're more using this to sort of put the N64's uh, presence in the North American and European market into like, into like the right context. Right. And like, I wasn't a kid when the GameCube came out. I, I was mm-hmm. a legal adult when the GameCube launched, or, or at least close to it. So... I can never know what it was like growing up GameCube, right? So if somebody comes at me with their experiences, I'm not going to discount them, just like we're coming to you with our experiences with the N64. And so for all I know, like maybe the GameCube was... You had similar Nintendo bubbles on the playground, right? Like... I mean, I'm absolutely positive that it did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this is just a generational thing. But it's just I, I'm tired of it, Josh. I, I like <laughs> we're we're all fans. We're just slightly older or younger than each other. Let's learn from each other and and share wisdom. <laughs> yeah, and like that's what kicked all this off is that like sometimes I'll you know like in my videos sometimes I'm describing the market as it was in '96 or not in like 95 or 96 and i'll say something like you know the n64 this powerhouse of a console was just over the horizon and people are like the n64 wasn't a powerhouse it like the playstation was was like and no the playstation was was technologically inferior to the n64 but like, it was the n64 easy. was the most powerful console on the market when it, it was released it, it was and it, it was just, until the dreamcast came out the playstation was far easier to develop for yeah, that and, that makes a difference. Like raw power is not everything. No, it, it really isn't. And I think Nintendo, like, learn Atlas because they would never have the most powerful console on the market ever again. Nope. nope. That was the that was the last time. Yeah, yeah. I I, I guess that was their takeaway from us. Like, oh, okay. So yeah, and I think that's like the shift then too is you know where we were talking about the N sixty four and it felt like anything was possible like the future was unyielding it it was just gonna go into the horizon (laughs) and with the gamecube it felt like nintendo shrank i mean literally the console shrank it it was a little tiny thing with a handle (laughs) it's all lunch pail but it, it was also the point where nintendo started becoming more like the toy and that's that's not fair that's not a a true like 
accurate reading, but that's the feeling compared to the PS2, compared to the Xbox. The GameCube well, I don't think it's even that unfair cute. because I think that that was always Ninte- that was always sort of how Nintendo approached game design, and that that is that's a lot of what I what I like about them and appreciate them to th- about them like their approach to it to this day is that they do see it as like. You know, Nintendo was a toy company before they got into video games, and they've, right. they've always kind of had that spirit of it. But I, I think the GameCube was just poor. Uh, uh, there, there were a poor, a couple of poor decisions that led the way it was marketed and the way it was presented to be off-putting to people at that time. That's for sure. It definitely yeah. was off-putting. To I, I think I, I, it wasn't what the market wanted in two thousand one. No, it wasn't. And had they just made a couple different changes, like having a DVD player in it, having regular sized disc, you know, I, I I think the GameCube could have honestly been more of a contender. But and the, and it's kind of funny because it's it's very similar to what happened to Sega in that same generation, albeit you know Nintendo's hardware business, of course, survived and even thrived again. But Sega with the Dreamcast put out this console whose selling point was. This is the games console. This is the one that's going to bring the arcade experience home. This is mm. we're, we're going to, and this is the one that's going to like push the industry into new experiences of of gameplay with online play. And that just that alone wasn't enough anymore. No. And then you had the same thing with Nintendo doing their usual, you know, games as toys approach, and the, and the market rejected that in much the same way. No. Wh- why? Why would you have that when you could have a whole like? home media machine that that mm-hmm. does everything for you like honestly like i'm an xbox gamer as far as like that is my home console like obviously i have a switch and i play a lot of my switch but the xbox is where i do most of my business and the main reason because of that is because i do all of my streaming from there like i str- like i stream all of my uh my shows and movies from my xbox Right. I can't imagine not having that function, <laughs> right? So yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It, it just like little little mistakes were made, and yeah, you can market it as <clears throat> no, this is just, this is four games. We're just gonna focus on games. We're not gonna have but when, when you when, yeah when you say Nintendo shrink. What I really think of is like every generation, like from the NES to the N sixty four, would toward the beginning of it, there would be this. The, like the Nintendo's consoles back then, at least in Western markets, launched alongside this Mario game that would set the standard for the generation. Like games that would that would come out after after that point, ap- after Super Mario Brothers, after Super Mario World, and after Super Mario sixty four, would iterate on a lot of its concepts and evolve them. Mm-hmm. Uh, even games in completely different genres. The GameCube was the first time where Nintendo wasn't setting the standard that way. Uh, you know, you can think about whatever you like about Mario Sunshine, but it wasn't a game that caused, that caused like game design philosophies to trend in its direction. Yeah. The, the GameCube is, and we, we viewed it derisively at the time period because you know it was a very angsty time for dk vine what with the buyout was it ever (laughs) oh yeah with with the buyout and rare all of a sudden being an xbox developer and the future of donkey kong in question and the portrayal of donkey kong in question and uh, we, we we didn't deal with it 
in the best way, probably, but we also, it was just un, unknown uncertainty colliding with the growing pains of getting older and having that generational shift happen in the most violent way possible for our fandom. Just like, yeah. oh, everything's changing overnight. Bam. Bam, bam. And so we were viewing a lot of what Nintendo was doing as also a betrayal of like, wait a second, they're just making gimmicky games now. Like they're adding quirks to them. They're adding innovation. Uh, like mm-hmm. uh, the, the quote unquote innovation. Like why does every game have to have this little twist? Why can't they just make a really good sequel? Why Why does everything have to be like attached to something else? Why does Mario have to have a backpack? Why does Donkey Kong have to be controlled <laughs> by bongos? Why is Zelda cell shaded? Oh no! <laughs> and you know, like people joke about that, but like that really was how the internet felt about it at the time. Yeah. Like I, there's, I remember this poll. I found it on the Internet Archive once on a on a fairly big Nintendo fan site at the time. the The poll question was, "Do you see the graphics in the new Zelda as as being a problem or a detriment?" And like ninety three percent or something said yes that they hated it. Yeah, <laughs> it was a huge controversy. Like, it wasn't just a niche that was saying this, you know? Yeah. I think, like, the only, like one of the only games that was unquestionably loved at the time is Super Smash Bros. Melee, which was just a really good sequel. It was it was the N64 game, but better. <laughs> and so, yeah. I, and when I got the GameCube, that's what I wanted. Like, yeah. I wanted it, I want, like, that's what I expected. I expected the GameCube to be to the N64, what the SNES had been to the NES. And, uh, it, I love the GameCube, but it wasn't that. Yeah. And to <laughs> Nintendo's credit then, like, they didn't, like, take the failure of the GameCube and just say, okay, well, I guess we need to make a true competitor to the PlayStation. They, right. they went even harder in, in their own direction and said, no, we're going to make this even more of a toy. And yeah. <laughs> and with the Wii, that was unquestionably a success in a way that um, I think even surprised Nintendo. Yeah, it it worked out better than than probably even their most rosiest projections could have thought it would. I've often talked about how shocking it was when my parents. And my grandparents had a Wii before <laughs> I did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then maybe they learned the wrong lessons from the Wii, and they just thought, oh, the Wii is the brand now. Wii U. No. <laughs> the Wii U is one of those things where it's like, I you can't fault them for going in that direction. You just... In in with with the benefit of hindsight, you can totally see it. But like as big of a success as the Wii had been, why would you not try to follow up on that? Yeah, but I I feel like with the Wii, they they they, they enlarged their audience. They they roped in a lot of people who wouldn't ordinarily have a video game system. It was a lot like the NES was when it launched. Mm-hmm. The problem was they didn't retain that audience. Like they had Wii bowling, well, they they had Wii sports. Why would they need to get a new Wii? And and I guess in retrospect, the 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 GameCube and the N sixty four can both be seen retroactively, of course, as this tr- sort of transitional period from of Nintendo sort of accepting that they like learning and then accepting that they're not going to be the 
standard bearer of everything that gaming is anymore. Mm-hmm. And then coming up with a completely new direction. And I think, in hindsight, the GameCube in particular kind of feels like this in-between step between... It's, you know, it's just as, it was just as capable as, it, it wasn't the weakest console on the market. It was sort of half, half trying to target the same audience that Nintendo always had, but it ended up with this reputation. Yeah. With the Switch, they hit that sweet spot where they, they've created something that really combines Nintendo's, what was, always been Nintendo's greatest strength despite what's been happening with their console games is the handheld market. So they finally found a way to take the strength of their handheld department and apply to their console generation to make something that is sort of like a toy, but also gives you really great games, the same kind of Nintendo games you're always looking for on their console and and really give you something different from the PlayStation and Xboxes. So, you know... Yeah, like, it, the, the Switch has Nintendo's... It, it, like, has that mass market appeal of the Wii, while also being something that, like, your diehard gamer crowd is really gonna want. Right, right. And something that you're not gonna get with the Xbox or the PlayStation. Like, so... It, it ju- it's just funny to watch Nintendo's evolution since the N64. And, you know, we, we, we're kind of getting off track here, but not really, because, like, why... Uh, this is in defense of the N64. Why are we not talking about the Switch and the Wii U? But it really is, as you said, sort of, like, where the journey started with the GameCube. But, I mean, the N64, I think, is the last time Nintendo's ever been in the cultural conversation as far as, like a big league console like viewed in the same light as its contemporaries. Like, yeah, the switch is wildly successful. Yeah. The the switch is wildly successful. The Wii was wildly successful, but they've always been viewed as different than the PlayStation and the Xbox. Not really of the same, right? The N64 was the last time it was like, Oh yeah. The, the N64 and the PlayStation, you know, and, so yeah, it's just it's just kind of like the passing of an era where yeah, the N64 is where sort of the bottom started to fall out and what led to the GameCube, which then gave us the Wii, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I guess it's just a long way of saying that at the time the N64 was treated seriously. It was considered a big deal, especially if you lived outside of Japan, where it performed almost as well as the Super Nintendo. And honestly, I feel like the ra- the rare factor of that is kind of part, like, the, the, the central, like, one of the big things that we, that we both share in our fascination on this whole, this whole idea of generational shifts and changes is the way that rare is viewed in relation to Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Because, you like you you know you, you've you've told your story about you know discovering Donkey Kong Country and that just being like <laughs> like the the game that changed your life. But to me, rare. I never when I was a kid, I I had never actually known a Nintendo that didn't have rare. Yeah, like the two the, for from my perspective, 
like a lot of what I liked about Nintendo and thought of as being Nintendo was actually rare. I and I, I did not see any <laughs> any dividing line between them. Yeah. And I think part of the reason that this I, I that we that we see this a little bit a little bit uh, as a little bit of a personal issue when people you know deride the N sixty four or don't don't see like the value in it or is because that t- like the line between the N sixty four and the GameCube tends to be uh, where that generational shift happens because of uh, aside from uh, Star Fox Adventures. Uh, Rare had no presence whatsoever on the GameCube. Yeah, and so so when you say like the N sixty four was a failure, I'm like, um, excuse me, Diddy Kong Racing, Banjo Kazooie, <laughs> Banjo Tooie, Conqueror's Bad Fur Day, GoldenEye 007, Perfect Dark, and- like four of the top ten best selling N sixty four games were made by Rare, like. In a lot of ways, they carried that console. Like, you can, I don't, I'm not saying that it would have bombed in other territories the way it did in Japan without Rare, but I think it would have looked a whole lot more like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't begin to tell you what Rare <laughs> meant as, as a kid. Like, I, I remember, like, feeling like the N64 wasn't as great as the Super Nintendo back during that time. I made that argument as much online, but like, I, I always said, you know, set aside like, Oh, but except for rares games, because that really was carrying the system (laughs) for me. And like, yeah, sure. I played Ocarina of time. I, I played and loved super Mario 64. If I'm honest. Yeah. I, I, my, my loyalties quickly shifted once we got Banjo Kazooie, but you know, I played Super Mario 64 and I enjoyed the hell out of it, just like everyone else in 1996 and 1997. Um, I even played Pokemon Snap and, and other games, you know, but yeah, Rare really, they were the heart and soul of the system for me. And so mm-hmm. as a Rare fan, yeah, of course, the N64 is going to be one of the greatest consoles in my life. I, I Because... It's home to some of the greatest games. Some of the games I've enjoyed more than any other games in my lifetime. So, and I've, and I've talked I, about that before. A lot of the reason that the game, like the GameCube, very well might have might have hit me the same way the N sixty four hit you, given the given the extremely similar ages and you know the the similar context. If it had got if if Rare had stuck with it, but the fact of the matter was like like I said, so much of what I thought of as, of so much of what I thought of as Nintendo was actually rare that losing that was just an incredibly difficult shift. And, you know, you talked earlier about the entire market, like the entire video game industry just seeming to like flip over in the early 2000s and become something kind of it 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 wasn't rec- it wasn't what you thought it was before. And, uh, you know, I was dealing with that with both Sega, you know, the the failure of the Dreamcast and then going third party and then Nintendo losing what i thought of as a big piece of their identity in rare so <laughs> yeah that was a, that was a very difficult time for me yeah growing up sucks doesn't it yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> which is why we always cling to these golden years when we're, when we're like i don't know age 11 to to 14 or so i i don't know like it it varies from person to person depending on their own life experience but 
generally, you know, if, if you're privileged enough to have had a happy childhood and you're well off enough, your parents are well off enough, your family situation was uh, well off enough monetarily to afford such luxuries as video games, then yeah, you're, that's always going to be your true north for what video mm-hmm. games are your entire life. Like you, you can evolve with the times you can f- discover new passions and loves, but you're always going to come back to that era in particular. And so I completely get it. I completely get why somebody who grew up during that era of the GameCube, you know, post N64 would have this viewpoint and might look at the N64, especially when you look at the common wisdom of, oh, the PlayStation steamrolled it without, again, looking at the nuance and saying, well, yeah, but the N64 still did pretty well for itself. It was still a contender in a lot of ways, culturally, even if at the end yeah, of the day, the PlayStation was the uh, far and away the the winner. Yeah, it's it's not so much that the PlayStation crushed everything else in the market as much of it as it is that the PlayStation grew the market exponentially. Yes. Like the, 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 the N64, like we've said, was all, was pretty much like as successful as the Super Nintendo was. The PlayStation was just like nothing that anyone had ever seen before. And I would argue that it was a trailblazer in the same way that the NES was a trailblazer in the eighties where mm-hmm. the PlayStation charted a path for people who before then, you know, video games were viewed as kids stuff. It, it it was not something that you would carry on with as you aged because there there is no historical precedent for that, right? And so the PlayStation right. was the sort of the torch that that gamers would carry as they entered the dark caverns of <laughs> adulthood. And it would be like, oh, actually, I can still be a gamer and be in college and be in my 20s. And, you know, I, the, the PlayStation is it. And it's a far more important console than the N64, absolutely. But it doesn't diminish what the N64 was or how much it hit with a certain age group, just like the GameCube hit with a certain age group. I mean, it's it's just a matter of perspective. Yeah, I kind of, if if you don't mind, I kind of I kind of want to read something from a magazine from back in the day that's always sort of stuck with me. Sure, <clears throat> if that's okay, it's your show. <laughs> no, no, go ahead and uh, read read somebody else's words from long ago. <laughs> uh, this is from Next Generation magazine. They had a, a fold out that was sort of talking about. It, like this was just after the N64 launch, and it's sort of speculating uh, on on what the console's chances are going to be. And this this I think this does a good job contextualizing where things were at the time. Uh, it says, without Super Mario 64, the Nintendo 64 would be nothing. With Super Mario 64, the Nintendo 64 is everything. It really is as simple as that. The range of N64 games revealed so far are shocking in their mediocrity. Sure, Pilotwing 64 is exciting, Wave Race has potential, and there's no arguing with the pedigree roots of Doom, Cruisin' USA, and Super Mario Kart. At the time, Mario Kart 64 was called Super Mario Kart R. But (laughs) it's Super Mario 64 that's causing all the excitement. The game's scope, depth, and sheer brilliance is simply breathtaking. 
Graphically, Super Mario 64 exceeds anything seen outside of an arcade, but it is the gameplay that will have diehard gamers salivating. Indeed, those who have not experienced the supreme playability and depth of Nintendo's in-house 8-bit and 16-bit games may appear slightly ambivalent toward Mario's 64-bit debut. But don't be fooled, this is, mu this is as much a gamer's game as it is a sure mass-market blockbuster. But what of Nintendo 64's future? Can gamers look forward to a new golden age of, of genre-busting revolutionary 64-bit titles? Or is the Nintendo 64 doomed to be remembered as a one-trick pony? After all, how will other games even begin to match the quality of a project that took two years, 40 full-time staff members, and an unlimited budget, and the golden touch of Shigeru Miyamoto? And by the way, it's kind of funny that they say a project that took two years and 40 yeah. full-time staff members, which was a lot at the time. Yeah. But that's like, that's, so that's a pretty dang small project now. Oh, that's that's so charming. Oh. <laughs> oh, I know, right? A wary eye is cast over the, over Nintendo 64's chances of dominating Sega and Sony. Page 36 is where it all begins. I think magazines such as this probably had a very big influence on me in the way that they would talk about video games in in such monumental fashion. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but that you know, I was talking earlier about what it, what it was like to play to play the the N64 literally the day it came out. And the way it describes Mario 64 there, like that is exactly how it hit me. It was like nothing that we had ever seen before. <laughs> and that was that was the that was the vibe I kept getting from the N64. That was you know, it 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 just kept showing me all of these genres and all of these games and all of these characters and all of these worlds that were just unparalleled with anything that would have been possible in the previous generation. For me, it, it was like, wow, Super Mario 64 is incredible. I bet Donkey Kong's gonna be ten times what this is. Oh, that's it's it's funny too, because like you said, you know, you you were you were years away from having an online presence, and I was years away from being able to type well enough to have one, even if I'd wanted to. <laughs> but uh, I do definitely remember, like, I knew the pattern. I knew DKC came out in '94, DK Land came out in the summer of '95, DKC Two came out in the fall of '95, and it was just I took it almost as a given that, like, well, the big N64 Donkey Kong game will definitely come out. <laughs> Uh, in the fall of 97, because that's of just the pattern. Right, no. Uh, and then the Virtual Boy Donkey Kong Land game will come out uh, <laughs> in 1998. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the Virtual Boy will be a thing that exists in 1998. You know, it, it made so much sense at the time. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so... We we have a we have a call and we have a reader submitted uh, textual call. So why don't I read that first? This is from sure. Freezer. She sent this via Hi, social Freezer. media. Yeah, says uh, I know Freezer. Yes, she says. Do you think the N sixty four would have have a different public perception nowadays if it received a secondary official controller design later in life, like 1999, as an example. Both the Saturn and PlayStation did this, and the latter has basically stuck around ever since and defined late system titles. The controller is the main source of jokes from people who didn't grow up with it, the console, and in retrospect, a single stick wasn't the wisest thing, given how 3D games operated. Interested in what your opinions are of this weird hypothetical. 
The 3DS tried twice to incorporate a second nub so the N64 could probably have failed as miserably as that. P.S. Talk about Mr. Pants. <laughs> well, I, I we will get to Mr. Pants. I'm actually going to use Mr. Pants in an analogy in, uh, in, in our final thoughts here. I, I promise <laughs> I will. But, um, Josh, what do you think Stay about tuned. this? Okay, the N64's controller, um, I, I think I'm probably... I think we're both qualified to talk to talk about this in in as as we keep saying in the context of its time. Yeah. So the the thing about the N64 controller and I'm holding the official Nintendo Switch online N64 controller in my hands right now and and looking at it. The thing that that is really hard I think to parse about the N64 controller is that there was no standard at the time. Mm-hmm. There mm-hmm. was no template to follow. For mm-hmm. for all I knew in 1996, this was how video game controllers were going to look. This was the shape they would take uh, from then until time immemorial. Uh, <laughs> there, there was no, there was no set standard for how or where like an analog stick should go. And I, I like, even at the time, uh, you can find archive videos of people getting their N64s or, like, I, there's a channel that uh, posts a lot of, like, uh, camcorder footage from back in the day. And the guy gets out the N64 controller and he's like, well, that's kind of a weird thing. And I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't. It wasn't. It was this weird three-pronged thing. But I think the thing, I think... That's that's the sort of, sort of the main thing is that there was no there was no there was no template to follow. So like you ask, um, in retro you say in in retrospect a single stick wasn't the wisest thing given how 3D games operated, and like maybe you can say that with hindsight now. But if you look at the way that the DualShock was used on the PlayStation, it had two sticks and it was like nobody knew why. Mm-hmm. Like there aren't a lot of uh, aside from very very dedicated stuff like Ape Escape. There's not a lot of games on the original PlayStation that uh, actually use the second stick for anything. It wasn't really until the next generation with Halo that you really started seeing a lot of games take advantage of it. Um, and even even like early on in the sixth gen with the GameCube, uh, the Xbox, and the PS2, a lot of like 3D, a lot of third-person action games back then were still putting camera controls uh, on the L and R triggers. So like that took a lot long that took like longer than the N64's lifespan for developers to even like know what to do with the second stick. So I I I I do totally understand why they why they why they wouldn't have made a dual stick controller at that time because the first time I saw the DualShock I was like why? Yeah. Yeah, it, it it's almost impossible to actually describe what the N64 controller felt like at the time, because yeah, I, I think the standards for what a video game controller is have solidified so much since then. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, th- there's just this basic uniform feeling to, to everything from the switch pro controller to the Xbox to the PlayStation. I mean, it's just, Everything kind of has a, a similar feel to it, and the N sixty four, yeah, it it had to kind of chart its path, and yeah, at the time it was like, okay, well, 
Of course, we're going to have a weird-looking control. It has to look weird. We're going to be moving around in 3D. I mean, I I didn't know what to expect. And so it was an adjustment. And, yeah, nobody could uh, agree how to hold it. I was holding it wrong, apparently. But it felt right (laughs) to me. And it worked. I I got the the job done. So, you know. Go ahead. No, it it just, like, yeah, it, it feels like a clunky piece of trash now sure yeah but at the time <laughs> I, I still like it actually i mean look uh, but so, maybe that's my nostalgia talking so, you you were you were like about 13 for the n64 so when <laughs> again I, you're gonna see it more similarly to how i do the gamecube when i got the uh the n64 controller for the switch and i was playing mm-hmm. banjo kazooie with it it i was like oh my god I, how did i used to do this this is so awkward eventually though the muscle memory did come back so it was funny when i started playing uh my dk vine done slow series for banjo kazooie i was like i i didn't know how to control it at first because i'm so used to playing <laughs> with the xbox controller now uh but by the end of it, I, it it was like uh second nature again so um it yeah came- whereas whereas i whereas i got it and played banjo kazooie all the way through with it and i was like oh i missed this <laughs> yeah yeah it just uh but it it was um like I said, there's nothing else like it. There were no standards set, so I don't know if it would have made a difference because I don't even think by the end of the N64's life, it was it was universally agreed how a 3D game should control or how it should feel. Or um, oh yeah, it, it wasn't at all like the the Xbox the original Xbox controller took uh took quite a bit after the the Saturn and N64 controllers in that it had six face buttons. Yeah. So like the the standards <laughs> the standards like would would take longer than that to be set. But I do want to say something as long as we're talking about the controller kind of in defense of the way that it was designed and what I think they might have been going for. Sure. Because one thing that you'll notice about a lot of Sat- uh Saturn and PlayStation games if you go back to them now is that you know, I said earlier, not a lot of them know what to do with the second stick on the DualShock, but a lot of them don't know what to do with the first stick either. And part of that is, a big part of that is just because you couldn't take it as given that every PlayStation owner would have a DualShock because it was introduced later. But I think it was also because the D-pad was was so accessible on the PlayStation, <laughs> on the PlayStation controller. Like, you could always just use that if you wanted to. There was no reason to force people to use the analog stick. I think part of the reason the N64 controller is designed the way it is was to make developers and make players acclimate themselves to the analog stick because I remember trying to learn to play Mario 64 for the first time, trying to learn to control a character in 3D for the first time, and, like, basic actions that you wouldn't really think about were like I was, you know, falling off cliffs and going in the wrong direction and like just tumbling off of things. And I think ha- if I had had the option to just use the D-pad, I probably would have done that. Yeah. But that would have been totally like going against like what the what the point of like what the game design was. So I think because the controller had this three-prong approach where you could hold it you could you could put your left hand on the analog part, or you could put it on the D-pad part. It forced players and developers to make a choice, and it forced developers to prioritize the analog stick as something that you would be using and, like, to work with 3D movement and get used to it. And, yeah. of course, that would never, ever, ever be a concern now, 
but but it, I but I do think that's what they're that's what they were going for. And I'll also say I love the Z trigger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it I I remember like there there was that like steep learning curve of oh my god this this is this is new. This is, oh my mm-hmm, God, mm-hmm. I'm Mario's flopping all around. Oh my God. <laughs> exactly. And, and eventually you got the hang of it and it forced you to get the hang of it. And, and you might be right. Like that might've been the, the thinking. And you know, because like experienced gamers really, 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 really like they, they, they hate the feeling of like something, di- something different or new making them feel like they're not good at video games. <laughs> right. Right. And they'll just and they'll just stick with what they know if they can. Yeah, and I and it, so yeah, I, I think that's I think that might have been part of what they were going for. Yeah. All right. Should we take the call and then uh, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up as best we can because I don't think we can ever fully wrap this up. It's, a, it's <laughs> too nebulous and we have too much to say. But we'll, we'll, we could talk about this all day. Yeah. We could, yeah. And let's not. <laughs> I got yeah, too much okay. to do this time of year. So <laughs> sure, sure. Hey there, DK Vine. John Tessier calling in for another episode of the conversation. So this uh, this time we're talking about. Uh, N64 and uh, the nostalgia or the perceived uh, nostalgia around it. Um, so, you know, I grew up, uh, my first console I ever remember was the N64. So I, uh, you know, I have a very fond memory of it. You know, growing up, talking to all my friends, we all basically agreed that the N64 was like the greatest console ever. But then, you know, I, I grew up and I went on the internet and uh, checked out to see, like, you know, not everyone shares that opinion. In fact, a lot of people... Don't think the uh, the N64 is a great console. And like, when I first heard that, it was, I was like, "What? These people are crazy. They just they don't understand. You know, they they got to be there for it. You know, and, and I that's not the case. <laughs> There's a lot of reasons people uh, don't like the N64. <clears throat> and after playing some of the Super Nintendo games, like you know, Donkey Kong Country, Donkey Kong Country 2, uh, like Alive Alive, uh, Chrono Trigger, all the like amazing RPGs that were made at the time. It's easy to see why people didn't like uh, the N64 era as much because it's almost as if the Super Nintendo era was it was taking gaming and it brought it to another level and there were so many things happening with fighting games and all, and all these all these different companies were making all these crazy games and then N64 was almost like a, a back to basics to things where we had to relearn how to design everything in 3D and, and and all this stuff so I understand why people don't like it and uh, you know. Uh, but I will always have a soft spot for it in my heart, no matter what. All right, uh, before I leave the time, uh, have a good episode, and I uh, can't wait to listen. Bye. Well, thank you for the call, John. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... it's. I guess back to basics would be a way to view the N64. It, it was basically, like, reframing how to make video games and the expectations of what video games needed to be where the Super Nintendo was just an evolution of what came before the previous generation. It was just mm-hmm. more of the same bigger, bolder, um, where the N64 had to kind of reinvent the wheel or the analog stick in this case. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's why I say, like, I can very easily relate to how somebody born in 1998 must see like how how it must be a little bit hard to glean what the N64 was like or why it was so important because that's very much how I saw the NES. Mm-hmm. And the NES was, you know, 
in that same sort of state of like, okay, we need to figure out how 2D video games are made and how 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 this how this D pad is going to be able to operate. Yeah, and I, it, it's hard to get a grasp on the full history of something when you're jumping in midstream or or, or mm-hmm. wherever you are in the timeline. And, and it, it's hard to then go back and appreciate what came before. Like, I'm going to bring it back to the Beatles, Josh. All right. So, like, obviously the Beatles are before my era, but I, I really grew to love the Beatles. But then the Beatles, they they loved the, the rock and roll of the 50s. And, mm-hmm. and that's not really my thing. Like, I, I, res- I can respect, like, you know, Chuck Berry and, and all the greats from that era, but it's just not the, the sound that really, like, works for me. I like the Beatles' original music, but, you know, it, it's just a generational thing where what they grew up with the 50s rock, and that's what got them into it. And I, I like their music, and, you know, and so on and so on. This is, this is applicable for, anything any form of entertainment and sometimes you can end up having like vicarious nostalgia for through through the lens of somebody else's perspective yes or just because just because that's what they talk about or that's the kind of work that they allude to in, in in their in their own productions and that's why that's another thing that really attracted me to your videos is the vicarious enthusiasm you have for everything you cover like i might Mm -hmm. not be a sonic the hedgehog fan on your level but i can appreciate your enthusiasm and zest and zeal for the series because i find it very relatable for how i feel about donkey kong and rare Mm -hmm. so i i think it's just we just all have to understand each other Uh, we we just have to like so, like, yeah, that's not how I feel about that particular thing, but I totally get where you're coming from. And, and I, I can I, point to things that I do feel that way about or that I remember feeling that way about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, like I said, I keep coming back to it, but we're always going to be the products of our childhood. And, you know, especially if our friends also had that experience, our, our friends of that era it, you know if we all played the same things that is going to be the true defining truth uh, of that era and yeah when i was in my teens and even my 20s the endless nostalgia for the original nes it rankled me it it, it irritated <laughs> me because i felt like it was diminishing what I loved. I felt like they were saying this earlier era was far more important and beloved than the era I was a part of. Um, and, you know, I had an and, NES. I played the NES. I loved the NES. But it was never my system in the same way that the NES, but especially the N64, were my systems. Right. And and that sort of thing can also be kind of alienating. Like, I remember as a teen reading a review of the Mega Man Anniversary Collection, and the opening paragraph was something like, if you were too young to experience these games back in the day, you need to get off the internet. I'm like, well, I, I can't. I couldn't have done that. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I like Mega Man. Hello? <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's this tendency to... 
always want to talk down to the younger generations. And then there's a tendency for the younger generations to always want to burn down the older generations. And it just, it's just, it's exhausting. As someone who's, who's ever heard of the ice climbers? Nobody likes them. Why are they in Melee? <laughs> As somebody who's been on both sides of this divide now. Oh my God. Can we just. Yeah, now it's like, who the fuck is Banjo? Nobody cares about him. <laughs> It's, but, yeah, but it's the same thing. It is. It is. It is. And, you know, I am somebody, I I really started to discover who I was. And I didn't, you never stop discovering who you are, by the way. I, I, I want to be clear about that. Like, never stop evolving. Never stop learning new things about yourself. But, you know, I I really started crystallizing as, as a little individual during that play it loud era of Nintendo, where, where Nintendo of America was marketing things with 90s attitude, man. Like, yeah, fuck your parents. <laughs> Play it loud. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and Rare uh, Rare came up as Nintendo's right hand. Like, they they were essentially, it, it, was, it was Nintendo, and then they had Rare right behind them, backing them up. And, and Rare felt so prolific. It was basically like, second nintendo within nintendo like rare always felt like they were larger than they actually were it, they, <laughs> yeah, they didn't feel like they I were a studio they didn't feel like they were just a studio they felt like they were this whole entity that could go toe-to-toe with nintendo if they wanted to like like if rare wanted to break away and say like we're taking the fight to you now nintendo put them up <laughs> they could have done it because it felt like like the the ridiculous output they had during that era is still unreal still doesn't seem feasible um yeah you think about the 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 games that were released from 1994 until 2002 just by this one developer yeah and it's just it's completely ridiculous it it, it would be ridiculous in any era but yeah. <laughs> i still don't know how they how they pulled it off but, you know, despite all of that, despite the way I felt, yeah, it, it was always the 8-bit generation that was glorified and um, and hyped. And, I mean, uh, the industry, you know, we've talked about it in this episode, the industry grew around them. <laughs> the industry for a long time grew by following their tastes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I understand the way now, like, the 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 younger millennials and the zoomers and uh, I I understand like <laughs> and the, the alphas yeah oh it's the alphas now is it yeah um, <laughs> yeah 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 I I I I I right so that's 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 what he said right? <laughs> <laughs> that's what he said yeah, yeah. oh so, man yeah they are uh, not gonna think that one's funny uh, the GameCube generation the Wii generation like I get it I I get the frustration of how you feel um. Like that desire to want to tear down what immediately came before in order to find that justification, that validation in our own personal narratives. Because we are the hero of our own story, are we not? The, the journey that we're on must be the very ideal of the Joseph Campbell monomyth. Josh, uh, it's, <laughs> you know, that includes whatever the hell console we played the most and, and whatever defined that era of our life. But 
I guess the ultimate crux, the ultimate point of this episode is we also can't ignore history or bend it to our own taste. Like, I loved It's Mr. Pants. I think It's Mr. Pants is the most brilliant puzzle game of all time because it definitely mixes ingenious and addictive gameplay with in my opinion, deeply rich characters and just absolute gonzo lore. But when someone comes at me, you're welcome, with, Freezer. Yeah, when someone comes at me with the hard statistics and says, "Hey, did you know that Tetris, this game called Tetris, out of the Soviet Union, uh, it's a bit more successful in 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 sheer numbers than uh, it's Mr. Pants." A little bit. Yeah, you know. I'll, I'll look at those numbers and I'll say, well, I guess I have to accept that, uh, I, I guess I have to I accept that Tetris is more successful than <laughs> It's Mr. Pants, even if that narrative, that factual narrative hurts me a little bit. It, it, it causes you psychic damage now. <laughs> it, it wounds me just a bit because in my own bubble, It's Mr. Pants is the master of the puzzle genre. How could it not be? It's it's Mr. Pants. It's in the name. But, you know, I, I think accepting that... But, but here's the thing, and I think yeah. you've always got to keep this in mind, because going on, t- like, say, Twitter and looking at the state of gaming discourse now, ca- <laughs> like, just doing that causes me psychic damage, because all you see is people who are going through the same thing that I remember going through and that I remember seeing other people go through. Mm. And it's like, you can say, yeah, of course you'll accept the narrative that Tetris is more successful than it's Mr. Pants. And I know we're, we're, we're making an exaggerated joke about it, but would you have been able to so easily accept it when you were like 20 years old? (laughs) (laughs) No. Or would you have been really kind of, Kind of unjustifiably pissed off about it. And part of the reason I do what I do now, um, I do episodes like this with you, is to kind of help people, maybe, uh, <laughs> avoid the same mental uh, <laughs> fisticuffs and, and just sheer anguish that... Uh, that I went through that my contemporaries on DK Vine went through during that era. I mean, it sucks. <laughs> it, it sucks. Yeah. Online discourse at that age sucks, especially yeah. when it feels like our own childhood are under attack. And, you know, here on the flip side of, of everything that we were saying as an N64 fanatic, as somebody who will defend the system to my dying breath, yeah, Nintendo made serious, grievous mistakes with the N64 that wounded the company for years. I can I can slag on the GameCube all I want, but that started with the N64. 100%. Yeah, and the N64, I, I really do feel like, was when Nintendo got so high on their own supply. And, and, and they thought, like, well, we're Nintendo... What we say goes for the industry, and yeah, I mean, and and to be fair, that is how it had been for over a decade at that point. Yeah, and then overnight they alienated third parties, and and Sony, their aborted partner, 
for for the, uh, this this add on <laughs> to the Super NES, all of a sudden reaped the benefits of their mistakes and overnight became the industry leader. And I think took everyone far outstripping even what the NES was. I mean the yeah. the PlayStation blew the NES out of the water. Yeah, and I I don't think Nintendo expected, and Nintendo fans didn't expect it. Nintendo fans of that certain age during that era didn't expect it. And nope. I mean, we we haven't even discussed like what a what a mistake it was seen as even at the time to stick with the cartridge format mm-hmm. at that time. Like there was just. It w- it seemed completely insane to do it, and indeed, that is a big part of what alienated so many third parties. Right, and don't get me wrong, I love an N64 cartridge. Like, the, feel- oh, yeah, me too. the feeling of it in my hand, the weight. You know, when, when you would pick up an N64 cartridge, and it, the question was, how heavy is this one going to be? Because they weren't the same weight, and you're like, yeah, oh, yeah. oh, this one's heavy, this must be a really good one. <laughs> Banjo-Tooie is, is a very heavy game. Oh, and I knew that was because of the secret mechanism to get the ice key in there. I just knew it. <laughs> yeah, you'd reach this point in the game where you'd you'd pull a switch and your cartridge would open up automatically. Yeah. Steam would come out the sides of it. I didn't know how it would work, but it would be like a transformer, right? It would eventually just, <laughs> I'd pop it open like, oh my god, I found it. <laughs> but look... Despite the mistakes of the N64, it was a time of immensely revolutionary games, of software. A time when they had the unique position of having a Western partner studio in Rare who practically doubled their output. And in, at least in, in the minds of the, the true believers, the, the ones who had an N64, and were all about the games that Nintendo was releasing, you know, it... It kept them on par with things like PlayStation, where, no, we weren't getting all the third-party games we got on the NES and the SNES, but it didn't matter because the weight of of what we were getting, (laughs) those heavy cartridges, just hit all the more because, yeah... We were getting games like Goldeneye. We were getting games like Banjo-Kazooie, Diddy Kong Racing, uh, alongside Ocarina of Time and Super Mario 64 and Mario Kart 64. It, I mean, it it was just... um, It was flawed, and and it definitely led to bigger problems down the line, but uh, it it was still an incredible machine, and it was still incredibly popular outside of Japan. And and it was a and it was a time where the games you would get in one year would completely reshape your understanding of what gaming could do and be, and that is it has been so long since that was the case. And understand, I'm not saying the modern industry is doing anything wrong. There's no way it could be like that anymore. No, but when you when I think about what's what was really special and really remarkable about that time. Like that was one of that was one of the big things. Yeah, you know, Heil. One of the last uh, first party N sixty four games released was this bizarre port of Doctor Mario. Now imagine an alternate timeline where, inexplicably, several years after that, Rare did their usual thing, where they take what Nintendo did and do them one better, and they released its Mister Pants sixty four. Well then. 
We wouldn't even have to have this debate, would we, Josh? The N64 would still be on store shelves to this day. This has been a File 2 production. Terrico.